Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Very first day of Mar Cheshvan. It's the second day of Rosh Chodesh. Good morning, everybody. And guess where we're spending this Rosh Chodesh, Mar Cheshvan, in the holy city of Jerusalem. We named it the Lieben Presidential Suite here at the Inbal Hotel. The Lieben family has left, but they left strict instructions that we broadcast from here. From this beautiful porch, this lovely mirpeset, this incredible patio uh, for Wednesday, for the third day of our journey. And then we're going to head back to the United States of America. A lot of activity today, by the way. Uh, Naomi Nachman did an, an amazing supersized show with an all-star lineup, which everybody will see in here. 9 a.m. this coming Friday. She did that right here at the Inbal, right here on this porch, in fact. Um, uh, Miriam al Wallach, uh, her... That's Life program was just recorded moments ago with a superstar, Tamir Goodman. And that's going to be uh, tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. What else should I mention in terms of uh, advanced... Say it again? And Live Lunch for Thursday was recorded here yesterday before we knew the Yankee results. Bite Size as well with Yoni Pollock uh, coming up at 9 a.m. this morning. was all done here uh, from Israel for the Nahum Siegel Network. So... Here we are in day number three, another day of great guests, another day of wonderful programming. And um, I want to take this opportunity not just to thank my staff, but to thank Steve Leibowitz, who has been fundamentally essential in helping us present an array of wonderful people to speak with here at, um, at JM and AM and the Nachum Siegel Network. All right, it's early on this Rosh Chodesh morning, but we have an opportunity during this early morning hour to spend some time with three very wonderful people. Uh, we felt it was uh, certainly appropriate in light of the uh, tragic news on the Sunday before Yom Kippur of the murder of uh, Ari Fold, and Ari, as now the world is learning, and many people knew this already, um, is somebody that uh, has always been regarded as a heroic figure in the Jewish community, but now certainly... Um, both in terms of uh, how he gave his life and in terms of how he lived his life, more and more people are learning what type of hero, in fact, he was. And three of the people who knew him really well and who are going to give us an opportunity to speak about him and talk about this incredible galvanizing effort throughout the international Jewish world that has occurred uh, in the aftermath of his passing are here in our uh, mobile studio at the presidential suite of the Inbal Hotel. Uh, Josh Haston actually joined us the day after Ari's murder just to give us some type of update so we could feel connected uh, to what was going on in Israel. He is the international spokesman for the Gush Etzion Regional Council. has been with us a million times before. Josh Haston, Shalom. Welcome to uh, JM and the AM. Welcome to Jerusalem, Nachum, and welcome to all the listeners. So, Darabah, it's nice that we're actually reunited in Jerusalem, huh? I prefer this. I prefer this than over you the phone. <laughs> yeah, you do Definitely. prefer this. That's I like the true. live. Uh, Gedalia Bloom is here, co-founder of the Orange Pages, promoting businesses within Judea and Samaria. Gedalia Shalom. Hi, thank you for having me. A pleasure. Thank you for being here. And Avi Abelo, who, as I always say, I know longer than either of us ever will care to admit, uh, he is here. We seriously know each other, no joke, close to 50 years, whatever. It's a whole thing. Uh, he is CEO of 12 Tribes Films, has done some incredible work in that venue, and he also manages the Israel Video Network and IsraelUnwired.com. Avi, great to have you back. Welcome, always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, so at the Mizrahi Synagogue on the Lower East Side of Manhattan... Uh, we get to shul on Friday night every single week, and the Nasi, 
our leader of the synagogue hands out a packet of uh, articles, uh, key things from the week that people need to know based on his, uh, on his uh, research throughout the entire week, which is obviously a very great resource for all of us who want to know what's happening in Israel, etc., etc. And the first page of this packet, as we call it, is usually either a Caroline Glick article mm-hmm. or a uh, Moshe Faglin article. Um, a couple of weeks ago, this was the front page of the packet. Wow. And I thought I'd share that with you because I, I have told, wow. I, I, I've told so many people, some of the people here and others, that I think for one of the few times that I, as a uh, resident of the United States and someone who does care about what's going on in Israel, it's one of the few times um, this whole episode, this tragic episode of Ari Fold's murder, where the international Jewish community did feel mm-hmm. the yep. pain of what was going on in Israel. I, I think most of the time it's very difficult for us to do it. This time... People everywhere around the entire globe, and by the way, I'd add non-Jews as well, which we'll right. talk about, really felt the deep pain uh, of, uh, of what happened uh, the Sunday before Yom Kippur. I don't, I don't even know who to start with, frankly, in terms of all this, but, but let's talk about that point first. From your perspective, I'm in the U.S., from your perspective here, did you feel that unlike our usual phony approach toward caring about what's going on here, there was really a sincere pain felt around the world? So I'll, I'll start, I, I, I believe, um, I'll start on a high in, 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 in taking your, your question, your point, because I had a lot of thinking to do after, uh, after Ari was murdered, close childhood friends, worked together talking every day about our, our Israel, Israel advocacy, getting the truth out there, that, that there, is, there aren't no narratives, there's one truth. That's what Ari was about, that's what all of us are about. So we're always partners in doing that. And when he was murdered, let's put it this way, I knew the funeral was going to be big. And noteworthy. Right, I, right. and right. I knew, and I said, we got to get there early, it's going to be packed, it's a small cemetery in Gushetzion, small road, get out there, got to get there, it's, it's going to be packed. I knew it was going to be packed. But I was in shock, in, 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 in happy shock, to see the ripple effects of what his murder had on so many people all over the world. And I explain it like this. It, it's not normal. It's not normal. And I'll, there are a couple of parts here. It's not normal. And again, we're all, we're all religious people, deep believer. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu, deep believer, right. we say blessings over the good, just we say blessings over the bad. Right. Everything's for a reason, whether we understand it or not. And sometimes we'll be, we could be upset about it, and we should be upset about it. But the, I had to explain this to myself. What was going on? All of a sudden, all over the world, rabbis all over the world, saying Divrei Torah on, on, on Yom Kippur about Ari. Everyone doing, Handing out things like this? Handing out things like this. Everyone doing projects. This person creating a magnet. This person creating a poster. Sukkah Posters, decorations. Sukkah decorations. It's just a million we dollar. We had this hanging go- in our sukkah as well. Right, and a million dollar GoFundMe in less than a right. week. In right. less than a week. So I'm talking. I'm thinking to myself, Oh my God, what's going on here? And I think the, the way I explained it to myself is, Hakadosh Baruch Hu gave Ari a neshama, and he was a very special guy, very special person. Uh, it, not everyone liked his style, but that's the style HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him. And he used the kochos that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him. And in a body, he was only able to make that much influence. 
And I know, like all of us, we're all very frustrated. We want to make an even bigger, bigger influence on the Jewish people and, and for the land of Israel. And we were only able to make that much of an influence. And all of a sudden, he gets murdered. And it's because of how he lived his life, who he is as a person, and the help he did, and what he did for Israel, and a soldier, and a, and a, and a heroic soldier in life itself. And then how he dies as a hero, and the video of him, of him, of, right, of him being murdered, murdered as, as a hero and saving other people's lives. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking to myself, Oh my God. HaKadosh Baruch Hu basically set this all up in a sense. And again, people could disagree with me. Right. This is my thinking. He, he, he led his life in, to be the certain way that now HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, listen, I need you up here with me, Ari. Now all the influence you were doing, which you, you were so frustrated, you weren't, now I'm going to take that to the nth degree, to the infinity level, and make it go all over the world. So, like, he, totally was bi- so he was big down here. He's become much bigger, much bigger since leaving us. But the most unbelievable thing is all, when I'm talking about pe- this with people, and then people, some people are... And, Different people from different directions, they started telling me, Avi, you know who Ari was? Ari was Mashiach ben Yosef. And I started thinking about that, and I started talking to other people about that, and I started and I saying this, you know, I know something? doesn't make a difference if you agree or not, right? We're Jews. We all disagree about everything, right? Whether you agree or not, the fact that people are even saying that, that some people are even saying that, there is what to be said about who he is and how he died and what his purpose is and what the purpose is for all of us to continue living his, uh, his the agenda that he lived with and, and keeping his legacy alive. Remembering Ari Fold right now, the uh, one of the points you made was the number of people you saw coming to the Gush, obviously, and I know you referred to it, thousands watching around the world. I mean, right. you know, just I, in my own neighborhood, it, it, was, it, it was as if all of us were collectively just gathering around, even though we were in our own apartments, we were gathering around and watching it together. And it was just—it was just unbelievable. And I and I felt that his somehow his immediate family, parents, brothers, children, wife, somehow were able on the worst day of their lives to present what he was all about, which is not easy to do, I'm sure, under those circumstances. 100%. And it was unbelievable. The messages that they gave to everybody about what he lived for and died for were simply remarkable. Right, and I think if you can... I'm going to give one word and split it into two, and we spoke about this... Uh, some of us spoke about this last night. Ari... People are talking about Ari like a Superman. Ari wasn't... He wasn't a Superman. Ari was a super man. Which is, which is what we're all supposed to be in this world. We're not supposed to be superhuman. No rabbi is perfect. No rabbi is perfect. Sorry, sorry every rabbi who's listening. No <laughs> rabbi is perfect. Even Sadiqim have their challenges. We all have our challenges. Our purpose here in this world is to be the best we can be. And Ari was a super man. He took that cha- Everything he did 24-7, mamish, even if not online, on Shabbos, he was still Ari and doing everything he could. And we should all look up to that and try to be the best, 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 best people we can be. You know, Josh, you you mentioned on the air, and you've said this, you know, in Facebook posts, and and, and I'm sure you've said it many times since then. Y- you heard an episode happen in the Gush. The first thing you think of is to figure out how to find out from Ari through Facebook or through speaking to him what had happened. And, of course, the tragic news that it actually happened to him. So that, that tells us that nobody had his hand on the pulse of the world, especially the Judea and Samaria world, the way he did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, as I said on, on the show the day after, I mean, that's the first thing I did. I was building, helping build my parents' sukkah in Jerusalem, and I heard there was an attack. The first thing I did was turn on the Facebook and look up Ari Fold or Ari, Ari Fold's defense page and see what the details are of the attack, because within minutes he was the first one at the scene, if not at the scene, at least reporting it, whether it was a rock attack, whether it was a rocket attack. And he'd always say, share this, please, because nobody else will. 
And that's really how he got uh, his, his message out to so many, so many people. And, you know, I heard this, this rumor. The I mean, New York Times ain't reporting it. No, the New right. York Times did that's not report true. it. Right. But the, back to the funeral, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the reason, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, uh, that he, you know, the funeral actually started so much later right. than it was scheduled to is because Ari was late to his own funeral. Yeah. Yes. Is that correct? Traffic. That's correct. Yes. There was <laughs> traffic. <laughs> I have never seen, you know, when you have a God door. God forbid, who passes away in Jerusalem? You have hundreds right, of thousands standstill, right. standstill traffic. So, <laughs> for you know, in a, in a, on a smaller level, you had on a small place like Gush Etzion, where traffic was backed up from the Gush Junction all the way to the cemetery. You're talking about two, three kilometers of cars that Ari, you know, the ambulance that was carrying him to his final destination, his final resting place, couldn't even get to the funeral. He was late to his own funeral. Unbelievable. And what's amazing now, I think, and, you know, we, we hung out a little bit last night, people who knew Ari, and, and uh, we chatted a bunch. So many different stories coming out <laughs> now of how he touched so many lives, stories you wouldn't even believe. We could probably spend an entire day rehashing, um, you know, those people who have come forward and said, you know how Ari inspired me? You know why I'm here, why I made Aliyah, why I'm living here, why I did this, why I went to the army? So many people have stories, personal stories, and Ari didn't have to take the time to talk to every single person. He didn't have to do it, but anybody who he uh, encountered, he spent time with that person, encouraged the person, motivated him, and you see these stories popping up one by one. And again, we could do a whole show just on the people he touched. And we should also mention that all his activities in athleticism, in karate, in Jewish education, all and in the army, all of it was to was to transmit Jewish pride to whoever he was. 100%. Even in the even in the karate arena, it right. seemed like the self-confidence that he gave and the and the again, incredible Jewish pride and awareness, you know, self-awareness and Jewish awareness was always at the forefront for him. The, right. the, the attraction to Ari, I believe, is that exactly what you just said, he's about the the Jewish faith, the confidence in himself, the the advice he gave people, the the trust. When he looked someone in the eyes, I was 65 years old, we just heard a story yesterday, Hmm. he met him at the Kotel and he looked at him and he said, you need to make Aliyah. And and, and, And the message was so clear to the guy, he ended up making Aliyah, but the message was so clear in a world today where there's so many questions. There's, there's so many you know, moral equivalencies about this, that side of that side, everybody's perspective. Ari wasn't a guy about perspective. He was a guy about the, the, the truth. And the fact of the matter is, people ask why Ari was so good at uh, a debater. And the, the real answer is not that he was a good debater. He just didn't debate things he didn't know about and that he didn't mm. tr- truly believe in. It's the people who go and make arguments about things that they're not fully aware of. and They don't, they don't have a, a, a good grasp of the information. And the perspective; those are the people who fail. Ari didn't, and you know, Ari didn't argue things that he wasn't 100% sure about. And that is the reason why I think there was such an international uh, tsunami of support for Ari, because, as as Avi said, that you know, people people likened him to 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 the Mashiach, <laughs> and I would say more like a leader. We were saying he's he's the guy in the army that holds the big gun. That you could stand behind. You know that he's going to be charging, and he's the guy that that's going to get your back. And when we lost that, on a personal level, the gentleman sitting at this table, on a personal level, we lost that. We lost our leader. And on a national level, I believe that people who were able to see uh, Ari report and say share this because no one else is doing it, were leaning on him so much to get the truth out. And now the 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 absence of him in the vacuum that that it, that has been created 
is 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 touching people's hearts so much that they want to do something in his name in his honor anything and we'll talk about that because there is a big uh, a void to fill uh gedalia bloom josh haston avi abelow we're remembering ari fold in the first hour of our jmn broadcast all right so now a couple now you've all had an opportunity to toss in some comments let, let me ask things that frankly our audience is really curious about does anybody know how he was able to get up and pursue his murderer in those final moments? Is, has anybody in the family or has any medical personnel been able to explain nobody's discussed it? There, there, was, there was some word that if, you know, there's a 50% chance he would have survived if he just stayed where he was. Really? Yeah. Um, again, these, this is all right. this is all here. Speculation. This is all speculation right. by medical professionals. Right. They, don't, they themselves don't know. So for anybody to come up with the reasons what, but let's just say that across the board, there is no logical medical reason why he was able to do what he did. Anyone but else in that situation would literally collapse on the spot. Yes. He gets up, and with the stab wound in his back, as we see on the right. video, goes right. and and literally does shoot. Doesn't just set up to shoot, no. actually shoots yeah. his gun, right? Right, and, and, and hits his target. And let me just say also, on the other side, the way he lived, there was really no explanation of how he did what he did either. There's, there was, There was, you know, some people have 24 hours in the day that they waste more than half of it, more than seven, three quarters of it. Ari somehow was able to take 24 hours and, 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 and stretch it to the point where he put so much action into one day, nobody could explain it. Did you yeah. hear what his brother said at the funeral? Remind as me. A, as an explanation as to what yeah, happened. Sure. You could probably quote it verbatim. No, I let Avi do it. Yeah, yeah, it was his brother, Eitan. Um, at the funeral. Uh, I'm referring to what he said in the interview, that he said, Ari, uh, Ari... If Ari would write a book about his life, this is how he would have written how he would, uh, how he would, how he go, would die. Right. No, and I was gonna, I was gonna <laughs> add is that his, his brother said, you know, in terms of medically, how is it possible? Right. When he was, oh. he said yeah. that at that point, he be- his brother believes this is his brother speaking at the funeral. He said, I think Ari was already gone at that point, and his neshama turned around, chased down the terrace, jumped over a wall, that was literally crazy. jumped over a wall. Shot him, neutralized him, and then only after collapse. So, so I'm gonna, again, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that and make it and give it the parish for more people to to understand on the <laughs> ground. Go but, ahead. but it's basically saying the same exact thing. Uh, remember before how he said Ari was a super man, right. and according to all the medical experts that I've I've spoken to and heard from, they said it's an anomaly. It doesn't make sense at all. But think about it again. If you go back to the video, and again, again, not every attack is videoed, right? Right, and here we and have here a, it's clear video, and here it's a clear video. So again, I see everything. Akadosh Baruch did, did everything for a reason. He didn't. He didn't, he didn't, one, he didn't fall. Right. He was stabbed. He didn't fall. Never collapsed. He Never collapse. went to the ground. He didn't collapse. Not only that, he immediately, immediately turned around and punched the terrorists. Before he escaped. Yes. Then the terrorists started running away, and then Ari gave chase, and then jumped over the wall, and then shot. So think about this for a second. First of all, how many people would fall? Right. How many people would run away, <laughs> away from your attacker? By the way, I almost fell off the wall just walking just, on the right, wall. Just and I'm not I, even kidding me. I'm not even kidding you. It, for a healthy person to jump over the wall on their own, walk down. And he cleared it. And Yeah, I mean, listen, it was it was a wall that was probably about uh, two feet high right. on one side, and then it dropped right. another few feet. So you're talking about jumping down four feet, right. which normal people would have to really— It'll be a challenge. It'll be a challenge. Right. right. So again— he didn't fall. He didn't run away. He turns around and hits the guy. Then he gives chase, jumps over a wall, stops, shoots, and hits. None of that 
makes any sense. And the explanation that I heard is basically Ari died as Ari lived. And like I said, he lived, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him the neshama to be able to be the person, not just have the physical strength and have the physical and martial arts training, but his whole being was about standing up and protecting himself as a person and as a Jew and as a representative of the Jewish people. And as he lived, he died. That moment, the way he lived his life, even though the blood was not flowing anymore, he was stabbed in his lung and uh, his main artery was cut, and he died because the main artery was cut. This is from what I understood, not because of the lung. Anyone else should have just fallen, but because of how he lived at that moment. His whole life was basically built up for this moment, and then that's how he died as the hero that we saw in the video. And Talk. that's why the inspiration, again, and the aftermath was so great as well. And yeah, it definitely had a big role in that. I just sure. wanted to add that I don't, I, be, I don't believe Ari became a hero because of that last action right. on the no. last Understood. day. Understood. It was just he, an he had it all along. It. It, was just, yeah. it was just part of it. Yeah. it unfortunately, it was the final battle. Right. Yeah, it brings the whole story together. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, talking about Ari Fold, of course, of blessed memory. What, what about this whole thing of... <laughs> of ripping up your retirement papers from the army. <laughs> do people do that aside from Ari Fold in this you're country? You're looking, there are some. You're there are looking, some some do you're looking at another one. Avi does that. Yes, there are. There are. There are a number of guys, and I, I'm one of them. That instead of finishing the army at 40 years old, because we and that feel would include all reserve duty. At 40, duty. there's nobody yeah. required to do reserve duty in mo- in most units. I right. actually switched to a unit that now. Would take older is, people. Yeah, yeah. Now we stay longer. So now, so now I'm in a unit but, that stays longer. But let's be on, let's let's be honest. In America, they have like baseball camp for men, right? They right. go away, right. away from the <laughs> fantasy camp, right? Come on, <laughs> I've been to these places. I've seen these guys go on Milouim, <laughs> and they're outside. Like, listen, the guys in Milouim, they're not fighting the war. They're taking over for other people who may be getting right. off or whatever it is. So they're having a good time. Let's just be honest. Okay, so so going on to the more serious <laughs> no, note no, here, no. even though I will not deny <laughs> that it is a wonderful <laughs> bonding experience with my fellow warriors for the Jewish people to go into our reserve duty whether for two days three days a week or even a month but not when there's a war <laughs> not when there's a war I mean just no example, no no it's my, not no. my brother-in-law it's is a, now 46 2014 he was already above the age and he went and you know secured the borders of Gaza yeah. in a tank because he was a tank reservist pa- way past the age of 40 right. so right. you have a lot of you know, I don't right. know a number of those who uh, this is right. either literally right. rip their paper or say, yeah. no, no, we're coming back no. from Milim, even if it is for summer camp. Or in some cases, that summer camp turns into a war. Right. And no. who knows the situation now in Gaza today when the next war operation or whatnot can erupt as a result of the, right. all the balloons and the terror and the rockets. So for some, uh, for some they actually have to do some major, major uh, uh, battling, uh, even those who are in their 40s. And um, Listen, I'll give you the bottom line. Why do I do it? Why did Ari do it? And I'm not comparing myself to Ari. Ari was still, he was the machine gun. He's 45 years old, for goodness sake, and he was running around carrying a machine gun like he was an 18-year-old. I will not do that. I can't do that physically. And he was still doing that at 45. Mm-hmm. Wait, so let me, so, but the point is, and I can only talk for myself, but I know Ari did this as well. I grew up as a kid appreciating we are the first generation to have our own country to defend ourselves. Our own and army. There is no and our own army to defend ourselves. And we're defending ourselves here. We're defending every Jew, no matter where they live in New York, Los Angeles, uh, uh, Paris, London, Australia, right? right? I am not giving up. For me, it is not a duty or a responsibility to serve as an Israeli soldier. It is the privilege that I'm able to have and that my children are able to have. I'm trying to give over this lesson to them, that our parents grandparents, great-grandparents, and all the West, going back to the kings of the second Jewish kingdom, basically, did not have. 
I'm not giving up on that privilege. I'm going to milk that privilege and be a proud Jew and stand up for myself and my people and my homeland. And I'm no, nothing for anyone who stops at 40. Everyone has every reason in the world to stop. It is hard. It's not good to go away for reserve duty. But so long as I can and my wife lets me, so thank you, Rachel, I'm going to continue doing it. How many... Um, uh, you just you, you just made a point that I wanted to... Uh, you wanted to add something? No, I was <laughs> Save say, me for a moment. I was, I was, was going to say, if those watching on Facebook Live right, right. now, right? I sure. mean, if you can just see where <laughs> we are... I mean, this is what it's Oh, that's all what about. I wanted to mention. That Look at us. Look at this view. This is, no- this is why we're here. There's nothing like the historic moment of Holocaust survivor grandparent mm. being with uh, Israeli soldier grandson or granddaughter at their induction ceremony. Well, and that's can, I tell, you, your, can I tell you a story that's even sure. more heartfelt? Uh, there, there's, there's, a, there's a family in Gush Etzion who's uh, the older couple are Holocaust survivors. The uh, the grandmother was a seamstress, and that saved her life in Auschwitz. She would she would be the one that would sew up the uh, the commanders in the Nazi uh, army and the SS their patches. Uh, Six years later, she's sewing the patch of her son in the army. <laughs> that's it. That's it. We are living in a time that, and that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the most effective messages of this entire trip of ours. Uh, is meeting people that are reminding us how we're living in a time like no other generation has in the last 1900 years. I, I, I tell this to people: we are the most blessed, blessed generation of Jews. And again, Anachem, forgive me for saying this, and that's why my message to every Jew is: come home, come home. Oh, I stole. His we're supposed we're supposed <laughs> to be here, be part of making this an even better country. That's our challenge: to be the best Jew and the best Jewish nation from here. Ki mitzion Torah. Yes, it's okay. You can, yes, you could do good, the good things wherever you're living, but the car place we're supposed to be is here in order to influence all of humanity no matter where they are all right we, because i'm over time now I w- but i do want to quickly give everyone a, i very fast <laughs> quickly give each of the three of you a chance to tell us how with hasbara and with ari's influence and inspiration we're going forward just do this as fast as we can Avi, we'll start with you B- very fu- moving forward i'm actually going to give the challenge to everyone else folks ari stood for the truth which is what we're about we have to stand out for the truth and for our own jewish pride Everybody, look at the look at the picture of Harabayit. Ari love to use us. Look at the picture of Harabayit. People call us occupiers. People say that we don't belong here. Look at the picture of Harabayit. The western wall of the Temple Mount is down below. King Herod built that for the temple. The mosque is up above. Who is the occupier? It's the Muslims who built on top who came afterwards. Folks, go with the truth. There is no such thing as Palestinians. They're a fake made up nation created in order to destroy Israel. Please stop using that term. Be proud Jews, can know your history and stand up for the truth and stop giving in to the lies that are killing ourselves. The term Palestinian is anti-Semitic. The second you allow that term to exist and you use it, that term represents that there was a Palestine and it's the Jews that do not belong here. That is anti-Semitism. Everybody, truth, truth, truth. Stand up for your truth on yourself and if you need help, contact us. We're here to help you. Avi Ebola, Gedalia Bloom, go ahead. All right, so practical practical solutions for your audience stop giving to large organizations that 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 waste money and are so inefficient and have zero impact start finding people like Ari Fold who are doing things out of the love of their heart and they were doing it for free and they were struggling with bills if Ari Fold when he went to your community and you didn't give to him and now you're feeling guilty and I've heard it from a million people already I should have given to him I should have given to him do you think do you think that the impact that he had on a, doing it for free was big if he had $5,000 a month if he had $10,000 a month in order to be able to create more content to be able to pay to get his message out to a million people instead of 20,000 people find somebody on the ground next time you're going to write a check and I'm sorry I'm going to say it right now next time for the IDF 
uh, the friends of the IDF knock on your door, just know 50, 60% of the money is not going to be to the IDF. Put it into someone's hands who's directly going to make an impact. It's enough. The paradigm has shifted. We are no longer, there's people, there's 30, 40 people I know on the ground right now that are p struggling to pay their bills and are out fighting every single day for Am Israel, for Eretz Israel, for the Jewish people for, in Israel and around the globe. It's time to support these people now. Now. That's Josh, it. So the, the question was, you know, the future of Hasbara. Right. And it's going to come through Jewish unity. It's going to come through unity. We all have to be together. And my colleagues here at this table and the group, the Gedaya, just talked about you know, small group of pro-Israel advocates. Unified group? Unified together. Actionists, we, not, not activists. Actionists. 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 We, none of us are here or could ever replace Ari Fold. Those shoes were too big. But everyone who are part of this small knit group have to unify together as one and continue his legacy through all the projects that they're working on, that we're working on. Unity. We need Jewish unity Integration. to go and continue his legacy to continue further. That's my message. Jewish unity. I thank Josh Haston, Avi Abel, Gedalia Bloom. Thanks to all of you. And thank you. please thank do you, what you can to, and I've said this directly to them, but it, it's good to remind them, the Fold family, that the uh, that Jews around the world, and non-Jews as well, as we said earlier, uh, have uh, have really stepped up uh, in the aftermath of Ari's murder and have really w woken up uh, a bit more than they have in the past. And now it's our channel to keep it there. Don't go down. Keep it there, folks. Correct. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Malcolm. We're at, uh, we're at the uh, presidential suite of the Inbal Hotel here in Jerusalem, Israel. Day number three of our journey. Uh, we just had an opportunity to remember and speak about Ari Fold. We knew that that would be a significant part of our journey this time, and I'm glad it was. Stepping into our mobile studio is Michael Dixon. Michael is executive director of Stand With Us, the Israel office of Stand With Us. He is a writer and public speaker and addresses audiences and broadcasts on issues pertaining to Israel and public diplomacy. Was listed as the 14th most influential Jew on Twitter. I would assume our very own Miriam Al-Wallach was 13. Uh, senior fellow at the Center for International Communication of Bar-Ilan University. A, an honorary member of Alpha Epsilon Pi and was appointed to the Spectrum Forum of Leading Executive Directors in Israel under the age of 40. Michael Dixon, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. That's the most important one, under the age of 40, <laughs> which my, I am now not. <laughs> my staff, number one, my staff, we have some huge fans of yours on my staff. That's it's number staff, one. Right? My staff also reminds me that this is a perfect bridge after the Hasbara conversation we were just having a moment ago. Yeah. I'm sure you can relate to some of the things we just discussed. Absolutely. I was at the Shiva for Ari, and I had a chance to talk with his family and Ari was someone very special and you can see the impact that he made on the world but his brother stood up and said to me you know Sorry. what we need to do now is be Ari's voice in the world right. and that's true of Ari and that's true I think of all of the victims of terror who would want us to speak on their behalf so that's part and parcel of, of what we do I think so it's a, a fitting bridge to the discussion that you just had and it's interesting and again I know that there are other things we need to discuss but it's interesting how certain terror attacks and certain terror victims really pierce the collective Jewish heart around the world. Ari's case, obviously, and there are many others, unfortunately, that you and I could discuss in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Sure. But, you know, certain, I, I hate to say it like this, but high-profile terror attacks that really uh, have lasted, images have lasted, names have lasted, 
a very long time, and his obviously is one of them. Um, all right, stand with us. Tell everybody in this audience what it's all about. Well, one of the reasons Stand With Us exists actually is because of a horrific act of terror. I'll take you back 17 years to the murder of two boys in the cave in Tekoa, mm, Kobe Mandel, sure. of course, and y- Yosef Ishran. Right. And that was, I guess, the straw that broke the camel's back that caused the people who founded Stand With Us, Rose and Jerry Rothstein, to call a group of concerned people together, together with our current or continuing president, Esther Renza, and decide that they wanted to do something. So we're a grassroots organization that started in someone's living room and grew out worldwide. Because the germ of what they wanted to do was so important and so vital, it was to educate people about the truth about Israel, to counter misinformation wherever they see it. Because that murder, you remember, the, the two boys were off school. It was a horrific murder in a cave here, in, 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 which is where they were found here in Israel. And the Los Angeles Times in their community misreported it, underreported it, as we see so many times, even today, right? You see the way the, the media reports, the language it uses. Or it doesn't even, it sometimes ignores the or story. Or ignores completely. the story. So they got together to do something. They brought people from across the spectrum in the Jewish community. And the something that they did was form Stand With Us. Now, fast forward 17 years, and we have a global presence. We've chosen to. The, to be active on campus particularly because we know that's where our future leaders are formed. We are reaching out across the world, fighting anti-Semitism. We've taken our programs into middle school and into high school. We've created curricula. We have created print materials on Israel that are distributed all around the world in their millions. How many languages? So we have 18 different languages at the moment. We're putting out digital content around the clock on a day-to-day basis, which is pretty amazing. On Facebook, we have... 1.2 1.2 million followers and a reach of over 100 million people. Wow. Yeah. Michael Someone Dixon. once said to me, Is that, isn't, aren't you just preaching to the converted? You're just, just speaking to the Jews? I said, 100 million people. Not a chance. Halavai. Yeah, halavai <laughs> is right. Michael Dixon's with us. Stand with us. Now, I remember, and t- correct me if I'm wrong, I remember the beginnings of Stand With Us being literally standing with us, meaning to go out to the streets and protest. Yeah, Am I right still do that? it. You are right. And and no one was doing it, or, or maybe they were doing it, but it wasn't being done enough. Right. So I guess we have this way of thinking that if you allow a vacuum of lies to accumulate and you don't articulate and stand up for yourself, then, you know, what what are we doing? So we got people out on the streets at demonstrations uh, in communities all across the U.S. Yeah, this wasn't just New York, folks. This was everywhere. No, and we grew up from the West Coast. Right. Uh, I remember LA was actually a very big place for these demonstrations. That's right. So, not least because a lot of the campus is there. A real hotbeds for anti-Israel sentiment. So, yes, we still do that. We'll still demonstrate when needed. Um, and, I mean, I can remember, you know, Nikki Haley resigned yesterday, right? right? Terrible news. Big knock for all of us. Yeah. But very recently, we saw her here in Israel, and we gave her a petition of support from her activists from all over the world. And i got to tell you, by the way, uh, seeing her eye to eye, she is someone of extreme integrity. What you see is what you get. She's pro-Israel to the core. Um, her values are as they seem to be. And I was in the UN and in Geneva, and we had a demonstration outside the UN. We were talking about demonstrations. And this was during Durban too. You remember the sure. infamous... So-called conference, conference yeah. yeah, right. The <laughs> conference against racism, where there was intense racism against the Jewish people. Correct. So we stood out there with students from all over the world, with big signs about human rights abuses that are happening all over the world that were being ignored, while they had this like laser-sharp focus on Israel. 
And on the inside of that hole, just to show you what a world turned upside down this is, I saw across the hole Elie Wiesel. Mm. So, Allah uh, shalom. And obviously, I wanted to go over and say hello to Elie Wiesel. So I walked towards him. And as I'm walking towards him, I see a group of people walking towards him. So I think, okay, they're other fans of Elie Wiesel, except they're shouting. And they're shouting at Elie Wiesel the word Nazi. Nazi, Nazi. Now, can you imagine Elie Wiesel being called a Nazi in the heart of the United Nations? It's crazy, right? But that's the kind of thing that we have to stand up with. So the, the news stories that day on CNN and the BBC and all the networks were covering our demonstration outside mm-hmm. of the UN. And that's why it's so important to stand up and to show up. All right. Now, what do people do? What do you want to tell this audience? Is it simply now just liking a Facebook page? Like, what, what can we do to be involved? Well, first of all, we can have a huge effect. Um, one of the things that we've been good at doing is leveraging our support base online to create real-world activity. So what we're trying to do is combat BDS, combat anti-Semitism. There's no line anymore between anti-Israel sentiment and anti-Semitism. This has been a theme this week with us because I'm asking everybody, is there a difference between anti-Israel and anti-Semitism? No, you see it now. Look, I was born and raised in the UK. I made Aliyah 12 years ago. I'm looking at the UK now where a potential prime minister, Jeremy Corbyn, could soon be in power who defines himself as anti-Israel, but not anti-Semitic. And yet, you see the result of the, his support base mm-hmm. is anti-Semitism unleashed in the UK. Right. That's the same every time a BDS motion comes on campus, a divestment motion. You see Nazis, uh, you know, swastikas on the walls. You see anti-Semitic activity. You see violence. It's synonymous. It's all the same thing. So what we're trying to do is leverage people to do more. Now that's on the campus and that's at a younger age as well as I said with education. But we're trying to get people online to make their voice heard. And I'll give you real world examples because you can really have an effect. A recent campaign we had, the International Chess Federation. It's going to sound like a strange example, right? The Chess Federation. But the Chess Federation was hosting their, uh, their championships in Tunisia. And Tunisia doesn't let Israelis come in. Mm-hmm. Now, the European children's chess champion happened to be an Israeli girl by the name of Liel, seven years old. Well, she wasn't going to play because they weren't going to let her. We launched an online campaign called Let Liel Play, had people from all around the world raise their voices, the result being that they are going to let her in. They're going to let the Israeli athletes come and play. Interesting. And that's For those who wonder if these campaigns work. Right. And we've, we've got used almost to this uh, bigotry in the world of sports and competitive right. pro- because if it's in an Arab country that doesn't Soccer admit Soccer boycotts and yeah. Olympic this and, and the champ- I mean, a lot of different sports have their championships right. and you see the Israelis the, or the, the Israeli. world, The next World Cup for soccer right. is going to be in Qatar. Mm-hmm. So are they going to let Israelis in? Well, we're going to campaign that they will. Right. So you can have an effect. And I'll give you some other examples. Air France. We had one of our, our online followers sent us a, an image of the in-flight map on Air France. Guess what's missing? Israel. The country we're in right now. We campaigned against Air France. We had that reinstalled. So unless you you speak out on these issues, nothing happens. Walmart, uh, Amazon was stocking anti-Israel products, anti-Israel t-shirts and things like that. Our people, you know, we coalesce their voice. They put pressure on them. They're gone. So that's really, really important. Our listeners should go to standwithus.com standwithus.com and they should make sure to be Involved. Also, the Facebook page, I assume, is Stand With Us. Facebook.com slash Stand With Us. That's right. And that would give everybody an opportunity to uh, uh, to participate in all of this. And um, we know, because we are 
I don't want to say on the front lines, it's frankly the students who are on the front lines, but we are somewhat familiar with what's happening in campuses in the United States. What goes on in Europe? What goes on in Asia? What is the, what is the level or, you know, how could you, how would you describe the intensity of the anti-Semitism uh, in educational institutions and in general in those places. Yeah. Look, I don't want to generalize. No campus is the same. But the you see the similar themes because BDS may portray itself as a local grassroots movement. So the BDS uh, on a particular campus may try and color itself as something local. But the truth is really it's a very well-funded, very strategic, uh, very well thought out and, and with uh, a global leadership. And we keep an eye on what their strategy is. So over the summer, we've been empowering young people who are about to go on campus, both in the States uh, and in Canada and across Europe and other places, to understand what are the themes of the BDS activists going into the campus year. So they can be forearmed and forewarned. And we teach them to counter that strategy. I mean, you go, you know, Jewish kids on a campus or pro-Israel students on a campus. They don't go to Israel to to campus to fight. Correct. BDS activists go there to fight. Our kids go there like a normal student. Yeah. Right? And a lot of them, frankly, aren't familiar with the issues. And right. even when you educate them, it's hard for them, you know, without some practice and without some, you know, encounters, it's hard for them to really get out there and and voice their concern sure. and voice. It's their super intimidating. Yeah. Uh, and so we we teach them what they're gonna see before they get there, right. so that hopefully then they take on themselves a leadership position and fight back against it. And it's the same model, whether it's in the U.S. or in other places, just different nuance, different <laughs> campaigns maybe, um, just a different nuance. But the critical thing is that we have to teach young people that this threat exists so that they then take upon themselves to stand up and make a difference. And again, and I know you've answered this already somewhat, but the the campus experience in European countries, for instance, yeah, and I know every campus is different, yeah. but nonetheless, similar to what happens in the United States, it's di- it's similar and different. So, for instance, divestment is a particular issue in the U.S. Right. because of the way the campus structure is. Uh, and so you don't have the opportunity to divest because there are no assets invested. Right. But we all know anyway that divestment is just a ploy. Sure. They don't think necessarily they're going to get universities to, to divest from Israel. They just want to create the appearance that Israel should be a country that is boy- should be boycotted, right? right? Um, when obviously Israel is uniquely undeserving of a boycott. But what you do have is is anti-Israel speakers, anti-Semitic speakers. You'll see them build a fake uh, security barrier, or they'll build it like a big wall, um, daubed with anti-Semitic, anti-Israel propaganda. You'll see checkpoints, mock checkpoints, uh, at schools like the London School of Economics. Uh, you'll see hostility, open hostility towards Jews on French campuses. Uh, so these are similar themes that happen everywhere. Now, we can't get everywhere. I'd like us to be able to. As much as we can, we'll help. So we've sent delegations to France and we've sent delegations to Australia. I was in South Africa with a delegation during the perversely named Israel Apartheid Week, which was a multi-diverse group of Israelis from all different backgrounds, including Ethiopian uh, Israelis and Arabs, helping the local students fight back against Israel Apartheid Week. Uh, and the and the idea that they're pushing, which is that Israel is uh, some unequal society. So, so you really could uh, attest to the fact that we're our own worst enemy. Our own worst enemy. Yeah. Well, look, you know, we we definitely Jews who support 
for their perverse reasons, BDS and uh, these kind of causes uh, cause a lot of damage. They certainly do. But we have to then redouble our efforts to reach people. You know, people aren't born Zionist. They have to be educated. Right. Right. And we have to teach them that this is where they come from. I say, you know, I've had even birthright groups. We have t we're, we're very close to the Stand With Us Center in Jerusalem. It's in King David Street. It's our visitor center. We educate about 30,000 people every year here in Israel. We're right across the street from the King David Hotel. We will welcome your <laughs> listeners with open arms when they come and visit. But um, we, one of the things that we try and do is teach people that they've got to fight back. Uh, and that's what we're doing here, and it's what we're doing around the world. All right. Uh, StandWithUs.org, Facebook.com slash StandWithUs. Anything else to tell our listeners? Absolutely. Just that you can make a difference. I mean, we're seeing right now, I give you a very, very to the point, uh, uh, very of the, of the time example. Uh, in University of Michigan, you saw a professor refusing a, lot a, Jew, a lot of Jews there. And you saw a professor refusing to give a letter of recommendation to a student because that student was coming to Israel. Okay. We joined together. together applying with, for an Israeli applying, institution. Yeah, he wanted to come to an Israeli institution. So ask your professor for a reference, as course, you would. For any place. Right. Why wouldn't you get it? Because you're going to Israel. Well, there was an outcry in which we helped to lead, and now this student is being disciplined. This, Sorry, the professor is being disciplined, right. and the student will study without any problem. So you really can make a difference, uh, and we hope that people will follow us and join us uh, in this course. Michael Dixon, Executive Director of Stand With Us in the Israel office. You've been with the organization since the beginning? or so For the last 12 years. 12 years already. Wow, amazing. Uh, all from, again, one of these high-profile terror attacks that all of us remember, uh, the one that took the life of Kobe Mandel and mm. his friends. They were uh, searching for uh, Lagba Omer. Uh, they wanted to build a bonfire for the yeah. upcoming Lagba Omer, and That's this right. is what happened to That's them. That's right. Uh, literally stoned to death and found... Uh, in a cave near Tokoa. Uh, Michael Dixon, I thank you. Standwithus.org, facebook.com slash standwithus. Get involved, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having Greatly me. Greatly appreciate Welcome it. Welcome to Jerusalem. I appreciate that. More coming up. You are listening to a, um, a Wednesday morning edition of JM in the AM as we continue from the um, international headquarters, <laughs> the the Mirpeset, the patio, the roof, the porch of the presidential suite of the Inbal Hotel. I want to thank Ronnie Timzit, the general manager of the Inbal for all of their wonderful hospitality. Inbalhotel.com, Inbalhotel.com. Check them out for Thanksgiving weekend, for Hanukkah, for January winter vacation, yeshiva break, Pesach, for everything. Inbalhotel.com. And we have more guests coming up if you keep it right here at JM in the AM. Give up, shall I give up? Give 
J.M. in the A.M. Sorry about that, Yoni. I thought you had not uh, pressed the proper button. My, mis- my mistake on that one. Uh, here we are at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world. The web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network. And, of course, uh, on the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Listener Terry's tuned in. She says, the term you used regarding the reaction to murder of Ari Fold, Hashem Yikam Damo, is woken up, is right on. Ari's voice was always heard by me around the neighborhood and on social media mediums. Those of you who want to comment on our app, like Terry did, go to the NSN, Nachum Single Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. Haven't paid enough attention to our app over the last couple of shows because the show's been so busy. So I'm trying to uh, make up for that, so to speak. Uh, don't forget that we are back tomorrow. My intention is to be in our New York City studio tomorrow morning after the flight and to present our Thursday JMNAM. In fact, tomorrow we have a back in the studio at JMNAM. We have a whole bunch of uh, of interesting guests uh, for a, a Thursday morning, including um, including David Cutler, who's going to be joining us from uh, NCSY. So uh, make sure to be tuned in. It's going to be tomorrow morning right here at JMNAM, of course. We hope to be in our New York City studio. And then Friday morning, Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Malcolm joins us on Friday. Uh, he'll be uh, presenting our weekly update with uh, my questions and his answers on another interesting Friday here at JMNAM. Miami Boys Choir, they're next. Keep it right here. We're in Jerusalem at the Inbal, JMNAM.
Remember, we have a full day of programming. That's Yehuda Green before that Miami. Don't forget, we have a full day of programming here at the Nahum Siegel Network, including Bite Size with Yoni Pollock, where he will feature a couple of interviews, one done by uh, Tova in Israel. She'll speak. It's actually the interview she did with Ari Fold of Blessed Memory. So Tova had uh, met up with Ari Fold a while back, and uh, that conversation between Tova and Ari is going to be part of Bite Size this morning between 9 and 11 Eastern time here at the Nachum Siegel Network, and last night we were walking nearby to the Inbal Hotel, and we actually saw the gallery, it's a gallery, right? 
We saw the gallery that Joanna Shepson's going to be featuring today during Bite Size called Herschelas. Called Herschelas. So the conversation that uh, Joanna Shepson has with the, I guess, owner of Herschelas is going to be part of Bite Size as well. All coming up between 9 and 11. At 11 o'clock, Avrami's going to be back in Beit Shemesh, and he'll present a live two-hour live lunch. So make sure to be tuned in tomorrow, of course, as we said. A lot of great guests back in the studio in New York. Recorded live lunch from here. Recorded uh, That's Life with Mary Malwalek with Tamir Goodman from here. And then on Friday morning, our weekly update with Malcolm Holmline. And then at 9 o'clock, a supersized Naomi Nachman table for two with a lot of all-stars from the world of kosher food uh, joining Naomi right here. Naomi was right here on the porch of the presidential suite at the Inbal Hotel. That's where we are right now, speaking to you live from Jerusalem. We're at the presidential suite of the Inbal Hotel. Uh, I want to thank um, Ronnie Timzit, who is the general manager here at the Inbal, and his amazing staff, uh, InbalHotel.com, InbalHotel.com. Um, make sure next time you you speak to your travel agent or explore your options in terms of where to stay in Jerusalem, that the Inbal is on the top of your list. And we have a lot of uh, different things coming up on the calendar, including Thanksgiving weekend, including Hanukkah, including January winter break, including uh, Washington's birthday weekend that a lot of people have off. So consider coming out to the Inbal Hotel when visiting Jerusalem, like Miriam Al-Wallach does when oh, she's here absolutely. in Jerusalem. Can I just tell you an only in Israel moment yeah. that just happened? It's crazy. So um, Ellie Groner, who's the former director general for the prime minister. He'll uh, join us later. He will join us later. But meanwhile, he has a meeting in the hotel. Right. So he, you know, we're in a beautiful suite right. with an office. He asked if it's okay, you know, if he takes the meeting up here. Right. Of course, no problem. And all of a sudden I see him speaking to a particular gentleman who I have not seen in a very long time and I couldn't place until I placed him. You know where I placed him? That's here. At my wedding. You know why? Because he signed my Ksuba. That's John Zimbalist, who I have not seen in forever. But meanwhile, Steve Liebowitz says, oh, you guys know each other. I'm like, yeah, we know each other. He signed my Ksuba. So it was just absolutely. And so John said, this is what I love about Israel. You run into everyone in the craziest of places. How random. And then he said to me, oh, you're doing stretch stuff. I was I just going to say, he's Marshall. Yeah. yeah. I said to myself, I think he's Marshall. Yeah. So he said, so, <laughs> you know, stretch you're stuff. doing stretch stuff. And I said, I sure <laughs> am. I've been doing it all week. That's Funny. Yeah, it was it was it was great. So it was nice to see him, and you know, but that is there's but there are so many only in Israel moments, right? I was actually just telling my daughter yesterday how last year when we came to Israel with um, with Nefesh Benefesh, and it was that insane day where we landed and left the right. same day, Correct. and we had an hour and a half to Correct. grab something to eat, and when we returned the rental car, right. the rental car agent had said to me, you know, you you rented this for 24 hours. I said yes, but we only needed it. For, for now, we're, hours, we're, eh? we're, we're leaving. And he said, well, maybe next time when you come, you can stay longer. And I was like, okay, thank you for the guilt. <laughs> it's very wow. nice. And I was, it, it was, it was hysterical. So, you know, these are in Israel moments that we absolutely, absolutely love. And we cherish and everyone has stories. Everyone has stories. So it's great. All right. Uh, I don't know the last time I saw Lenny Ben David. It's, it's been a while. Have a seat over here, please. It's been a while. He may have been living in the United States the last time I saw him. That's how long. That's how long ago it was. Uh, Lenny is the um, former head of APAC Israel, currently at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. He uh, served as a 
senior Israeli diplomat in Washington. Now he's director of publications at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. Public Affairs Consultant and publishing the IsraelDailyPicture.com. He's author of American Interest in the Holy Land Revealed in Early Photographs. I wish I had the book here because I enjoy that book like you can't imagine. It's sitting in my studio, and I just love looking at it. Lenny Ben-David, welcome to JM and the AM. Thank you very much, and welcome to Jerusalem. Made Aliyah in? 82. 82. I'm telling you, I think it might be the last time I saw you was before that. Is it possible? Or are you already in Israel no, the last time we saw you? No, probably in the three-year period when I was uh, serving, in at Washington. The, serving in Washington right. at the embassy. I have a feeling that was it. Anyway, a pleasure to see you. Um, start with the book, if you don't mind. I mean, the and the picture of the day. Like, why are these things important to, to disseminate to the world? I am a policy wonk. I work on policy and on political affairs and foreign relations. And I was looking up in the Library of Congress online a document on United States policy on settlements. This took place five years ago. And I came up with a, top, a topic that said Jewish settlements and colonies in Palestine. And I said, whoa, what is this? And I opened it up and discovered it was a photograph of Jews setting up a yeshuv, a settlement, right. 100 years ago. And I looked, and it turns out there were 20,000 such photographs in the Library of Congress that had just been digitized. And most of them came from the photographers of the American colony, which was formed in Jerusalem in 1881. Right. But then uh, subsequently, I found them all over the world. Libraries were digitizing their collections. Unbelievable uh, treasures showing history. And very few focused on the Jewish history, uh, for one reason or another. But there were things in those pictures that showed the Jews were always in Eretz Yisrael. And that's what drew me to this. And as I looked, I found so many treasures and so many stories that people simply did not know about them. I like the, the look back... 70, 80, 90 years, when you see Jews building Sukkot in Yerushalayim, when you see Jews mourning on Tisha B'Av in Yerushalayim, all those are included in your work. That's exactly what I was looking at, but some of them go back. Even further? I have the what I believe is the first photograph of Jews at the Western Wall, at the Kotel, from 1859. Wow. And there's an, there are two rabbis there. One of them is rather old. And you realize, <laughs> this picture was taken during Lincoln's presidency. Right. And that old man, that old rabbi... Was born in the 1700s. Was born at the time of George Washington. Right. And it shows that the Jews were always here. It wasn't something that came about after the Holocaust or with Israel's formation. It was something that was indigenous. Right. It's really amazing. I uh, highly recommend the book to to my listeners, American Interest in the Holy Land revealed Revealed in Early Photographs. has a beautiful cover. And, uh, not that we should judge a book by its cover. And uh, everyone should check it out, Lenny Ben-David. Lenny's here in our uh, mobile studio at the Nahum Siegel Network in Jerusalem. Nahum, yes. I will, since you referred to the cover, the cover shows American senators visiting the Western Wall in the 1930s. And they didn't come on a 747. They flew here because, uh, they, they, they sailed here, because they were concerned over Jews who weren't being allowed into, into the Eretz Israel by the British, and they were concerned by the attacks against the Jews by the Arabs. So some things have never changed, but the 
that they the, made that effort. The congressional effort and the congressional attachment to Israel is phenomenal. I'll add one uh, the picture. Do we know how many members of Congress were on that trip? Three senators. We know who they were. It's all a chapter in my book. <laughs> okay. They were encouraged to come by the newspaper mogul Hearst. Right. Um, William Randolph Hearst. And it was uh, a phenomenal trip that they made to in order to press the British to let the Jews into the land. The back cover has a picture that will be of interest to your to your listeners is a picture of a young war correspondent taken in, eight, in 1949, excuse me, 1948, April 48, just a couple blocks where you're sitting <laughs> in front of the King David Hotel. Right there. The reporter who had just graduated Harvard, we know him as Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. Wow. He covered, as a war correspondent, Israel's War of Independence. He filed four stories for a Boston newspaper that subsequently went bankrupt. The stories were therefore lost. I found the stories in yellowed sheets of uh, newsprint, and I published them. Bobby Kennedy's daughter was so thankful, she gave me pictures of Kennedy in Jerusalem. And so the pictures are also in the book and on the back cover. Unbelievable. Lenny Ben-David's here. Your former head of APAC Israel. A lot of our listeners are probably shocked that APAC has a branch in Israel, frankly. I opened it in 1982. Why? Um, first of all, I was coming here on Aliyah. Second, there was a lot of information available here in the bureaucracy, in the army, in the, in the, among the press, that wasn't always getting across to the United States for use by Israel's advocates. Hmm. And it was the day before... Internet, of course. Right. And in 82, I was, for instance, I was very, I had already been collecting information on the pending war with the PLO in Lebanon, and the information was just not getting across. And so having the office here allowed APEC to have that information. So it was sort of, uh, well, that was the purpose, to funnel information to the U.S. That was basically the purpose. Correct. It wasn't always. Different than the purpose of APEC in the U.S. Correct. It was so that APEC could be more effective on Capitol Hill providing the information. One other aspect that turned around was members of Congress were coming here and having an APAC office here allowed us to help tailor and uh, set up meetings for them and let them, uh, let them tour Israel with the most important issues on their minds. Did the fact that there was a, an office here help in getting American government officials to visit here? Or that wasn't effective. Uh, not American government, but certainly members of Congress and and uh, politicians who were planning on running, and so ah, those who were candidates for office, correct, and also press, and it meant that they could get what they needed to know, and it was very effective. And some of the people who came were very important. I remember a, a group of of congresswomen who came in, 19, in, the, in Pesach 1983. And the foreign ministry, frankly, didn't want to take care of them because they were habanot mi congress. They were just the girls from Congress. Right. And it was not a convenient time since they were coming on Erev Pesach. Right. So we arranged for the trip. We even arranged for them to go to our homes for Seder. And the woman who came to my house with her family 
was a unknown congresswoman named Geraldine Ferraro. <laughs> Who ends up being candidate for vice president of the United States. Correct. So there were <laughs> many cases like that where we've helped people in their, at their early stages of their campaigns and their congressional careers. Speaking with Lenny Ben-David, so what years are you in Washington? Which three years were they? I served in ni- from 97 to 2000. So that's the Clinton administration. Correct. And coincidentally, ends in 2000 because Clinton ends or nothing? Yeah, to do my with three it? years were. Oh, it was a three year term for you. Right. And what was the atmosphere in Washington at that time? We know that today everyone's always curious pro Israel atmosphere. What, are the, what does the White House think? What does the State Department think? What does Congress think? What was going on then? Well, again, Israel always turned, dating back to the 50s to Congress for right. their strongest support. Right. And the administration, frequently guided by the State Department, which also looks over the whole Middle East, um, has its moments with, with Israel. There's no question that um, President Clinton had a tremendously deep and even loving relationship with Yitzhak Rabin. But after Rabin's assassination, um, things were a little tense, between the between Netanyahu and uh, and Clinton. Well, you're there obviously post Rabin Arafat, right? right? That's ninety three. You're there post Chevron deal, I assume, correct? I was there for the Y. Oh, you were in Y plantation deal. And um, there were there was a lot of tension uh, at times between the administration, the State Department, and the Israeli government. But that was our job to. As an observer, how do you compare that Netanyahu tension with the President of the United States to what happened during the Obama administration? Some of the same players were there. And we saw a carryover by some of the... Players in the State Department or in general in the White House also? In the White House, particularly. And the the State Department. Yeah, that's more natural that there would be leftover in the State Department. But in the White House, there were several that um, certainly carried over their, their animosity towards Netanyahu. And um, we had to deal with it. Interesting. What a battle to fight, huh? Uh, it's been going on for years, and frankly... With, with, with a, with a um, break during the Bush administration, or not necessarily? There was always some issue. With even it. with a Republican president, even with someone who seems friendly with Netanyahu, even today you would say there are issues. Less so today. Right. Very much less so, I will right. say. But then, even with the Bush administration, you still had a State Department, and you still right. had, you still had critics and secretaries of state that were not always friendly. Exactly. Right. Uh, what did you think of the embassy move? I mean, you probably fought that battle a million times in Washington, trying to keep it at the forefront when presidential candidates would promise it and never deliver as president, and then this president delivers. What were your thoughts as this was going on? I go back at APAC to Cy Kennan, the founder of APAC, right. and I remember Cy would always write his testimony to the uh, political conventions and to the platform committees. For the platform, right. And the, both Democratic and Republican platforms, back in the 70s, were already putting the Jerusalem, <laughs> Jerusalem should be the location. Capital of Israel, uh, the uh, location of the embassy. And it was surreal. And when it finally happened, it was, <laughs> no, it was breathtaking. And um, one needed to say a shachianu, a blessing for for such an event taking place. Do you sometimes think life would be a lot easier for you if you were in Washington today compared to some of the old days? <laughs> yeah, your, your listeners can't see my sigh of relief. Um, that you escaped D.C., huh? It wasn't, it wasn't easy. Uh, I had already left the uh, foreign ministry, but it wasn't easy being an Israeli, a pro-Israel advocate 
during eight years of uh, the Obama administration. Right. Of course. I mean, and compare that to now. It's a totally different world, that's for sure. Um, only because we ask this to the majority of guests who have a political uh, uh, opinion. Uh, are we heading to new elections here in Israel? Well, we have to within the next year or so. Correct. But you know what I mean. Early new elections. I don't know. And I... I won't. It almost doesn't matter to you. I or? won't guess. Are we hap- are we going to have a new president in 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 twenty uh, twenty? I'll ask you that. Somebody said to me yesterday that uh, Nikki Haley's play is to now run against Trump for president. <laughs> that's. I think that's stretching it. <laughs> really? So do you? <laughs> uh, um, she's certainly going to raise her uh, profile in American politics. Who was UN ambassador from Israel during the term that you were in uh, Washington during those three years? Two years, where it was with Dory Gold. Oh, Dory Gold. Qual- so we Highly out, qualified for the job. We went out at the same time. Right. And you go back to Israel with him at the same time, you said? No, he, he, he served two years. Right. I continued in third year under Ehud Barak. Right. And um, that, too, was a challenge because uh, being Yeah, a you dip- mentioned 2000. Being a diplomat, I had to remain... Uh, very neutral on some of the political issues. And, and and we, of course, know that Ehud Barak was uh, quite generous in his offer to Yasser Arafat in the year 2000. Correct. And so it must have been very hard for you. I'll just tell you, I remember uh, speaking before a JINSA group right. in Washington, and they, I would say the government of Israel believes, and according to the government platform, this is... And somebody yelled out, what do you believe? And I said, sorry, that's in cold storage for now. Unbelievable. You wouldn't reveal a thing. Because I would assume you had your issues with the Prime Minister at the time. Or at least in some <laughs> of it. But you're not willing to say today either. <laughs> uh, would that affect the pension now if you would say something today? <laughs> n- n- not, at, not at all. <laughs> Lenny Ben-David, he's amazing. He's a former head of APAC Israel. You can check out IsraelDailyPicture.com. Great way to see uh, some of the stuff you're posting. And the book's amazing. Uh, write it down, folks. Uh, the book is called American Interest in the Holy Land Revealed in Early Photographs. You will see pictures literally from the mid, what did you say 1840s, earlier? 1840s. So in the mid-1840s all the way until the mid-20th century, right? I mean, until, Right. And um, it's available on Amazon. Oh, and you blog for Times of, times of Israel or not? I occasionally blog occasionally. for Times of Israel and occasionally write for the... And I write and edit for the uh, Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, JCPA. Right. right. Well, thanks so much for being here today. A pleasure. A Welcome. real pleasure speaking to you. And uh, And let's not wait so long. <laughs> yes, I agree with you on that one. That's for sure. More coming up. We are listening to a, uh, to a Wednesday morning edition here on this Rosh Chodesh morning at JM in the AM as we continue from the presidential suite at the Inbal Hotel. More coming up. Keep it right here as we uh, uh, are in the midst of day three of our three-day adventure to Jerusalem.
JM in the AM. Wednesday morning, we're live in Jerusalem. Very special guest with us live via telephone. Uh, Michael Oren is uh, an American-born Israeli historian, author, politician, former ambassador to the United States from 2009 to 2013, current member of the Knesset for the Kulanu Party, deputy minister in the prime minister's office. Many, many books, of course. Uh, Six Days of War, June 1967, The Making of the Modern Middle East, um, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, all all of these uh, amazing publications, uh, just part of the Michael Oren resume. Uh, Ambassador Oren, shalom, shalom. Thanks for joining us today, and welcome to JM in the AM. Uh, Shalom, it's great to be with you. Greatly appreciate that. Uh, You're one of the great experts on war, and not that I mean to start with a uh, a negative topic, uh, but but why was it, thank God, that this summer there was no full-scale war like we saw in 2014 in the Gaza area? What was it about the last few months that prevented there from being a a full-scale battle on that uh, border? Well, one reason is that uh, the people of Gaza, the leadership of Gaza, still haven't recovered from their defeat in 2014. And they know the price of war. Israel, meanwhile, has not remained passive. We have developed uh, technologies. Uh, we have developed tactics that have better enabled us to, enabled us to, to counter uh, the threats that Hamas could mount against us. For example, we have developed uh, totally revolutionary technology for uncovering uh, terror tunnels. Uh, which was a great scourge back in 2014. So uh, there's a greater sense of what the co- what the war would cost uh, to our enemies, and Israel, frankly, has also exercised a tremendous amount of restraint, um, and we deserve credit for that as well. Oh, no question about that. Um, what's the future on that border as the PA and Hamas debate whether they're going to get along, and as the and as Hamas. Consider, continues to consider whether they should demand a quote-unquote ceasefire from Israel. What do you see over the next few months? Well, I, I can't, I'm not a prophet, uh, though I live, you know, if I'm, I'm talking to you from Jerusalem, I'm not a prophet. <laughs> right. um, and we don't know. I mean, war could actually literally break out in the next few hours, uh, or not at all. One of the great factors contributing to the, to the possibility of, a, of an outbreak of war is Abu Mazen, the president of the Palestinian Authority, our, our putative uh, peace process Prague partner has cut off uh, the salaries of some 50,000 Gazan workers. He's cut off support uh, for pensions for sick people in Gaza. And he is pushing Hamas into war with us. Uh, Abu Mazen wants to fight Hamas into the last Israeli soldier. And then uh, when thousands of Palestinians are killed, um, however inadvertently in that battle, then Abu Mazen will sue us for war crimes. Uh, this is precisely what he does every Friday. He pushes those Gazans to uh, protest against up against the fence. Uh, some of them are killed, unfortunately, because they try to break through the fence. And then he accuses us of being war criminals. Um, and to my mind, uh, an even greater threat in Hamas right now is the threat of Abu Mazen. Uh, ambassador Michael Oren is with us live via telephone. Speaking of ambassadors, what was your reaction to Nikki Haley's resignation? Uh, sad. Uh, not terribly surprised. I know that the, the average longevity, quote-unquote, uh, of a of a cabinet minister of people in public office in the United States, particularly at that level, is about two years. Uh, so I wasn't in surprise. I was just I was saddened. Um, she was uh, a remarkable public servant, uh, a great defender not just of Israel but of the United States and of of, of freedom everywhere. 
um, unswervingly courageous um, moral strength and a great clarity of vision, which I think in, in public figures and in diplomats is the greatest single um, attributes one can have. So I'm sad to see her go, but I'm also very, very confident this is not the last we'll see of Nikki Haley and that she has a, uh, a stunning and stellar career ahead of us. Among your ex- I'm sorry, among your expertise, Six-Day War, Yom Kippur War, etc., what would be, in your opinion, the best example of American support and America's intervention in really helping and sincerely helping Israel uh, with a war effort in its history? Well, it would be the end of the Yom Kippur War, when um, President Nixon uh, ordered a basically an, an aerial train of arms, ammunition, uh, vital equipment to Israel uh, as a response to the to the aerial train that was mounted by the Soviets to help the Syrians and the, and the Egyptians. Um, and, uh, and that remains, uh, I think the high watermark of what a country can do for us, uh, when we're being, uh, we're being assaulted in that way. So I think that that should remain our, uh, our gold standard, if you will. Ambassador Michael Oren is with us. Uh, do, are we facing early new elections in the state of Israel? Is it inevitable? Well, this government has lasted a fairly long time. It's supposed to go another year. Um, and uh, if it does, it'll be one of the few Israeli governments in our entire history that fulfilled its entire four-year period. Um, again, I don't know. Um, my own you know, sort of gut feeling says that it's, it's premature. But the issue of the, the Haredi service in the army, the Haredi dress issue, is one that is highly contentious. It has been a a core source of uh, political friction in the past, and it's uh, set to resume when the Knesset uh, reconvenes next week. So you cannot rule out the possibility that, yes, Israel could go to early elections. The types of, uh, of laws and bills that you just described, it seems that there's never a resolution. Those items just, uh, you know, the proverbial kick the can down the road, and they don't really come to any real resolution and, and, uh, and a real conclusion. Uh, it is true, and it is, uh, it's a perennial issue um, in, in Israel, and one that becomes increasingly acute as the Haredi population continues to expand, um, and as a, a growing sense among Israel's national, religious, and secular population that uh, we are bearing the burden of serving our country, uh, and uh, most of the Haredim are not. My own personal opinion was that you, you, cannot, you can't legislate uh, people into national service. I think that it has to be a meeting halfway, and that eventually, um, I think national national military service and national service that's non-military will become not a point of friction in the Haredi community, but will actually become a point of pride. Um, there are people who have commented to me that nobody has handled uh, uh, President Trump, President Obama, and President Putin better than Prime Minister Netanyahu. I'm curious uh, in terms of what you think on the Russian side. Um, how important is it for Israel to maintain a cool and calm and collected relationship with the leadership in Russia? It's supremely important. Um, Israel has a multifaceted and, and by and large friendly relationship with Russia. Russia is a major trading partner. Between um, five and seven of all Israelis speak Russian, so it's a strong cultural diasporic uh, connection. Um, Russia's interested in our natural gas um, and, by and large, a friendly a country. Uh, but in Syria, we have um, divergent 
uh, interests, to say the least. Um, and Israel is doing everything in its power to avert uh, a major clash with Russia's military presence in Syria, while at the same time upholding our um, absolutely necessary campaign to prevent Iran from establishing itself militarily militarily in Syria and to transforming Syria into an active military front against us. Finally, Ambassador Oren, uh, this has been one of the themes of this uh, broadcast journey to Jerusalem. It is amazing to watch world leaders, representatives of uh, corporations around the world and governments around the world come to Israel and literally uh, you know, beg to be part uh, of what's happening here in terms of Israel's economy, in terms of its startup uh, um, uh, industry, its tech industry etc. Uh, historically, from the perspective of even recent Israeli history, how incredible is this uh, to watch and to be part of? It's incredible. Uh, when I was a, I'm a person in college, we didn't have relationship with China. We didn't have relationship with India. There was an entity known as the Soviet bloc, 12 countries. We didn't have relations with them either. After the, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, most African countries severed relations with us. Latin America was a was very alien from us. And now here we are in 2018 with uh, a very close relationship with China. Uh, our trade with China goes up about 30, 35 percent a year. China accounts for almost a third of all foreign investment here. India uh, couldn't have a closer relationship with India. The former Soviet bloc countries, Eastern European countries are our greatest, some of our greatest friends in the world. African countries lining up literally to uh, to make relations with us. And, and Latin America, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was the first Israeli prime minister to visit any state. He's visited four uh, south of the United States uh, right. last year. So all much of this is being driven uh, by Israeli technology. Everybody wants our water technology. Everyone wants our agricultural technology. And everyone wants the uh, massive amount of information we have gathered on defense. Everyone needs that. It is pretty remarkable that the fact that the younger generation thinks it's always been like this. Is, oh, no. Is, is, is <laughs> it's really a miracle. Uh, Ambassador Aaron, I thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak My to you. Thanks for taking the you. time. Shalom, Nitov. Shalom, shalom. There he is, Ambassador Michael Oren, who is uh, a, a, an unbelievable scholar, great historian. His perspective is always welcome. And I thank you for joining us here at JM and the M. And my thanks, of course, to Steve Leibowitz. Uh, Steve made sure to uh, include some amazing guests this week, and Ambassador Oren is one of them. More coming up. You're listening to a Wednesday morning Rosh Chodesh edition of JM and the AM live from Jerusalem.
All right, that comes from Eitan Katz off of the uh, Shirei Pinchas album here at JM in the AM. 8 o'clock in the morning in America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world the web at NachumSiegel.com on the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Feel free to comment on the app. Let us know what's going on, what you want to hear, what your comments are about what we're talking about. Ali Groner is with us. Three months ago, he stepped down from serving as Prime Minister Netanyahu's Director General, a position he assumed after being confirmed by the Israeli cabinet in mid-2015. The Director General manages Israel's federal bureaucracy and is responsible for formulation and implementation of most domestic policy decisions. Among other responsibilities, he uh, headed Israel's China-Israel Joint Economic Task Force. He oversees the National Cyber Bureau, was designated by the government to lead Israel's National Intelligent Mobility Initiative prior to assuming his role as Director General. Mr. Groner served as the economic attaché to Washington, a position also requiring cabinet confirmation. His time in the public sector was preceded by two years at Tanuva, Six years at McKinsey and Company, graduated from Barilan right here in the great state of Israel. Ellie Groner, welcome to JM in the AM. Pleasure to be here. How long were you in the Prime Minister's office? 37 months. And uh, it must be one of the most incredibly unique experiences of anyone's life who gets an opportunity to do that. There's no question. There's no question. You can do anything that I can possibly conceive of doing after this role, I don't see it approaching <laughs> in terms of interest, intensity, uh, what it was like there. And it was really a pleasure and an honor to serve. Uh, that I'm sure. Is, is every day, and this may seem redundant, but is, is every day 24 plus hours? Is, is there never downtime and you're in a position like that? Zero downtime. I'm not, I wouldn't exaggerate for effect in this case. Right. Literally, I would say for 37 months, except for one two week vacation, it was. Um, 16, 17 hours a day of work. And a middle... Net, net work, right. not gross, not that 16, right. 17 hours of work. And a middle-of-the-night crisis could be what? Could I mean, obviously, we always, you know, think about, God forbid, terror attacks or things that happen to Israeli citizens, you know, at a moment's notice, but what other types of things could wake you up in the middle of the night? Middle-of-the-night crises are actually not the biggest component to it. Obviously, middle-of-the-night crises can be something happened that has security relations. Right. But the real issue is that there's so much to do, and because the um, because the Israeli government is structured in a way that the Director General Prime Minister's Office actually is a sort of nerve center for everything, and it's very important for the Prime Minister or the Director General to be on, who represents Prime Minister, to be on board right. for any major policy decision. There was always work to be done. You're, and at, you're at every meeting. It's not just at every meeting, because being at every meeting is, is, is not an effective use of time. A lot of things, meetings don't always tend to be effective. Right. This might surprise some of your listeners, but meetings in the public sector are not always that effective. But uh, it's very important to actually use the time uh, judiciously so that you can have as much impact and be as effective as possible. Listen, that those 37 months are among the longest in the history of the position, right? Back in the 50s, Teddy Kollek did the job for six years, but that just <laughs> is not possible today. That's sort of like, you know, uh, comparing Barry Bonds, years. Barry Bonds' 73 home runs <laughs> right. to something in the post-steroid era. It's not going to happen uh, again. But uh, to me, the important thing was spending those uh, 37 months as effectively as possible, being able to um, deploy and change Israel's policy, primarily economic policy, in a way that was that would advance the Jewish state, not just for those three, not just for the duration of right. Prime Minister Netanyahu's term, but really for the next several decades. Now, the infrastructure. We, we always look at the turnaround of Israel's economy 
of it going from a desperate economy to a robust economy. Everyone points to Netanyahu, and not necessarily to him as prime minister, but when he was you know, more in charge of, I guess, the, the finance department of the state, right? Yes. That, that would be where the big change came. Once Israel had this reputation, or once it looked to us as observers, that it had a really solid, established, good economic base, what then happens during your tenure? How can you go ahead with that start and make it even better? Well, uh, there's a lot to do. First, let's, I mean, very simply, with, with everything that you just discussed and Israel's great uh, economic growth and thriving startup nation, etc., GDP per capita was $36,000 a year. Now, are we satisfied with a GDP per capita of $36,000 a year, or do we, do we aspire to double it? Do we aspire to triple it, right? So to say that, you know, with $36,000 a month, uh, $36,000 a year GDP per capita, that's not there. The second issue is that Israel's security needs are very, very real. And if you want to be a military and security force, that costs a lot of money, right? right? Cyber um, supremacy costs a lot of money. F-35s cost a lot of money. Submarines cost a lot of money. How does and it not we bankrupt? Need, how and does, we need all those things. How does it not bankrupt you the state of Israel? You need to generate economic growth. You need to gen. You need to keep generating economic growth. And that's the key the to stemming the tide. That is everything. You cannot have military. You cannot have military strength without economic strength. When you have both of those pillars, when you're strong militarily and you're strong economically, by the way, that's when you see diplomatic breakthroughs. It's not about. No one wants to make diplomatic alliances with people that are weak. You only want to, you aspire to make deals with those kind of people when you're strong. And what right. you've seen over the last five years, and I was proud to be a part of it over, you know, over three plus years, was um, we're seeing all these diplomatic breakthroughs and real breakthroughs in the Far East, in South America, in Africa. You know, the U.S., what, you're, what the listeners are familiar with, that's, that's obvious, right? But, the, and by the way, no less significant, the moderate Arab states in the region that is a result of our economic policy, which triggered sort of the derivative of strengthening our military, which makes us a force to be reckoned with on a global scale. And that's why we're seeing such uh, progress that begets progress that begets progress. Are a lot of those relationships kept under the radar? I mean, when, when I mean, you just alluded to it, you said Arab states, you know, in, in, in relationship to Israel. Uh, and I assume that means that there's some type of... of uh, uh, of um, not, not negotiation, but some type of business relationship that's going on with states that would probably shock us. Am I right? It's um, it's cooperation. It's cooperation. Say it's not necessarily deals. Or there deal, are a but combination it's of not, deals. And it's not the business relationship. The business alliance. The economic alliance is not the end all be all. Right. It's real alliances. Right. There's this. Um, it's there's, a piece of the diplomacy. There's, there's this burgeoning nuclear threat in our region, right. which. Uh, is cause of concern for Israelis, and it's actually more cause of concern for some of our other neighbors in the region. And right. what they have recognized is that Israel is part of the solution and not part of the problem. They've recognized that in a big way, and that's why you're seeing this sort of um, cooper- under-the-radar cooperation, which uh, is happening um, not just when you cooperate with people, you tend to do business with them. Right. And that leads to all sorts of other opportunities. Uh, Ellie Groner is with us. Tell me about the China piece. Uh, I mean, obviously, because of the 
incredible growth in, in startups, entrepreneurship, etc. So there's a, a desire uh, for many countries, not just China, to send their leaders over to, you know, certain send their business leaders over and explore what's happening here in Israel. I get that. But it, I, I, it, it seems like there's something extra special in that relationship between the Chinese leadership and Israeli leadership. What is it? China is complicated, but I'll tell you this. When we were there, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu and I went in 2017. We went about mm, six, 17, 18 months ago to China. We got the red carpet treatment, the likes of which are unimaginable for people uh, that weren't there. I'm talking about the president, the prime minister. Because. Jack Ma, the business because. Leadership, because they understand that the world is becoming increasingly digitized. The world is becoming increasingly technology-oriented. It's, you know, it's not just about cybersecurity, and it's not just about who can develop a better chip for a base station for this cell phone. Everything is becoming technologized. There's no more high-tech and low-tech. Everything is tech. Agriculture is all about technology. Um, industries, water is all about technology. And, you know, for years, the, the, these, three, these global forces of... of um, digitization, of a sort of interconnectivity, which is creating big data. You layer on top of that artificial intelligence. This is on all And it's all happening in Israel. And that plays to Israel's sweet spot. Right. That is really our core capability. That is where we are second to none on a global state scale. And when you have countries around the world, China included, but we have countries all over the world that are thinking, dealing with challenges that range from how do we fight terror? How do we feed our people? And how do we grow our economy? And the answer to all three of those questions are in the same place. technology, then right. guess what? You're going to come to Israel. And when you have a country that's led by a first-rate global leader like Benjamin, like Benjamin Netanyahu, I have to say, most countries around the world, you know, the people are less sophisticated than your listenership. Okay? They don't necessarily know who presidents and prime ministers are in other countries. Right. Netanyahu is one of the most well-known world leaders, legitimate world right. leaders. And that plays to our strengths. And that is why we had the red carpet rolled out for us in China, in India, in South America. Africa. Yeah, Africa. Af I mean, we, Africa was amazing. We, had a, we have a trilateral deal with, uh, between Israel, the U.S., and Africa on this Power Africa initiative run out of uh, the U.S. government, which gives Israeli companies priority for U.S. dollars from the Power Africa initiative in order to um, in order to bring these kind of technologies to help African agriculture. I mean, can you imagine, Nahum, that Israeli companies are getting priority? Are getting priority? By the way, this is sort of an assigned memorandum of understanding between Israel and the U.S. We have we've been we gave Israeli companies or America gave Israeli companies priority for their funding for Europe. This was a big signing ceremony. The Prime Minister, myself, the, all the African ambassadors from around the world. David Friedman and I signed on it together. It was, it's a very, very, very big deal. Unbelievable. Ellie Groner is with us. You just alluded to something that, that we always hear in the U.S. Is, is the Prime and I don't think this is that controversial, frankly, as you look back on your tenure with the Prime Minister. Is he, in fact, much more popular outside of Israel than in Israel? Or that's unfair? <laughs> um, How would you describe the way Israelis think of him? Would they prefer that, that that he not be the longest tenured prime minister at this point? Like, 
Because we know what we think about him in the U.S., and you've just described Europe and and, and Asia and Arab states to us in terms of uh, the respect he gets. Everybody has their advantages and disadvantages. Here's what I'll say, and this is more this. I'm I'm. It's only a partial dodge. <laughs> the the uh, the Israeli parliamentary coalition system is structured as follows. I'm going to compare it to the U.S. President Trump. What percentage of the vote did he get? Forty. No, he got. 50%, let's call it. Okay. 49.9. Right. He got Correct. 50% of the level, and he barely won. Correct. Right? Netanyahu, in 2015, had a resounding victory by Israeli standards. It was just a resounding landslide, unbelievable, <laughs> left everyone else in the dust. You know what percentage of the, vo- of the, of the vote he got? 21. 25%. 25. 30 seats out of 120. Right. Meaning our system is much more fractured in that way. Right. So. Um, so it's, naturally, seventy-five percent were not happy with it. It's right. a tough comparison to make. By Good the way, point. by Israeli standards, that was a resounding victory. Right, twenty-five percent of the vote. Right, understood. That's the way our system works. Right. So the system might dictate that he's not as popular here as outside the country. The parliamentary coalition system, where you have multiple candidates, tends to cause a lot of people to look at the flaws in other people, as opposed to when you just have two candidates to vote for and you focus on the flaws of just one other person, and right. more people gravitate towards and it. When Put it you, this way. If it was a vote just between Netanyahu and one other candidate right. here, I think he would probably end up with a higher percentage of the vote in Israel than um, any U.S. president I can remember. Understood. So when you look at, at the way he operates, and you saw this up close and personal for, for years, mm-hmm. is it any surprise to you that he's been able to do what he's done over all these decades, that he's maintained essentially, the office. I mean, we're talking about, you know, with rare exception, you know, nobody else was prime minister over the last 20 years. Uh, you know, I know there's exceptions, but you get my yeah. point. Uh, is it any surprise to you? Is, is he a diplomatic genius? Is he a political genius? Is he a, uh, you know, what is it about him that has allowed him to, to maintain this status? He, um, first of all, he's a political genius. Second of all, he knows the moves to make. Second of all, uh, he's very highly regarded internationally uh, for good reason. And uh, third of all, um, he, you know, the secret to in business, the secret to um, success for certain industries is understanding how it's regulated and playing to that strength. Right. He understands very well the way the Israeli system works. Uh, we can complain about it from time to time, but he understands it. And works exceptionally well within that system. Sometimes that system includes crushing political enemies, you know. That's I think that's true for uh, for, for any political system anywhere in the world. Yeah, as far as I can tell, any democratic system. Right. And now it looks like if you want to stay around for twelve years. Right. And now it looks like it's 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 not the cleanest game in town. Let's put it that way. Correct. And and now it looks like there'll be early elections. And the question is, if he calls for them, would we will know eventually, but there are those who think it could be a miscalculation. We've seen other countries go through early elections where the 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 sitting prime minister thought that they had a solid opportunity to take advantage and really you know hammer hammer the victory home, and they were you know surprised to find out it wouldn't happen. And guess what, Nachum? That's the way of the world. You could sit around and uh, and be bold, or you right. can always be the Monday morning quarterback and say what would have happened if otherwise. You know when we'll know if it was. If it was a smart move to call early elections after election day, after elections, if right. if uh, you know the if 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 he wins, then it'll be oh he's a political genius. Of course he did it. And if he doesn't have his resounding victory as people anticipate, oh you know what a mistake. How why, why did he? There's going to be a lot of revisionist history as to why. But I you know that's not 
there, the fact of the matter is, early elections in Israel is not really news. The, the news is when they're not early elections, right. right? If you think about it, this government has been in pl- The last elections were in March 2015. Right. So we're closing in on, on f- we're approaching four years. Now, the only reason it's early is because elections were supposed to be, originally supposed to be in November. Now, guess what? That's a four-year, eight-month term. Yep. That's insane. That's, in, that's almost, it's insanely, it's almost crazy to think that they would live out that term. So, what percent- he hasn't called anything yet. We'll what see. percentage of your colleagues in the Prime Minister's office when you were there spoke a fluent English? A much, much, much smaller percentage than you, than you think. What would the percentage I, be, approximately? It's not 10%, is English it? English mother tongue? Or really, you know, fluent mother tongue. I mean, you know, fluent. Well, a lot of Israelis have good English. But right. in terms of what you're thinking about, I think it's a lot less than you think. Less than 10%. Here's the, less here's, than 10%. Here's the dirty secret. In the sort of <coughs> Anglo media world, everyone thinks that Prime Minister Netanyahu surrounds himself with Anglos because those are the people that you're familiar with. Right. But there's Prime Minister... I oversaw 435 people in the Prime Minister's office. The Prime Minister's staff himself has another 20-something... AIDS. Um, that's, you know, call it conservatively 450 people, including, you know, 30, 40 that work closely with him. Now, guess what? Um, yeah, none of my predecessors, you know, when you go into the prime minister's office, um, there's, you know, prime minister Netanyahu, there's a prime minister's office, and down the hall, there's the director general's office. Right. And above the director general's office is a picture of every director general from Teddy Kollek up until mine. Um, with their ter- with their duration on it, etc. I'm the first fluent English speaker ever in the position, right? The problem, the, the issue is that um, historically, Prime Minister Netanyahu has wisely had his foreign policy people, which is a you know it's a very small piece of of what a prime minister deals with right. foreign policy, right? He's had his foreign policy people uh, be people that are fluent in English. Guess what? That makes sense. You want people sure. that are going to work on your U.S. policy to be fluent in uh, the U.S., not right. just in English, in the U.S. Just like the advantage he takes that he has a right. great so, English speaker. Exactly. So there's there's a number of these people that have been doing that, but, you know, those are not the majority. Those are not the masses. Those are, I mean, there's also a lot of security things. There's right. a lot of economic things. There's chevratif things. There's secu- I mean, you know. Plenty I, of local stuff. There, there's a lot of other stuff besides U.S. policy. You just said there were 435 under you? Yes. How many do you think there were in Golda's term under the uh, director general? Any clue? I, I don't know, but I'll say Wouldn't that the challenges, the challenges facing, you know, I had, the, we, we, I'll bet you that we had a lot more work to do than, uh, no offense I, to Golda, but I get that. The, the world has become increasingly complicated. I get that, but, but we also know that the difference in numbers between her inner cabinet and Netanyahu's inner cabinet, and it's a vast difference. I'm wondering if uh, okay, under the director general, those numbers would also be a vast difference. Yeah, everything's grown because, you know, we, in, in, 2018, we have to run a national cyber bureau, right. and you know you, you didn't have that in 1973. And uh, security decisions have become more complicated, and economic decisions have become more globally intertwined. There's just a lot more. Uh, the world has become, in many ways, much more complex, and uh, that requires um, that requires more thought on a lot of things. However, to the sort of important international barometers, what's the percentage of public spend relative to the economy or what percentage what percentage of um, what percentage of, of, of GDP is spent on public sector right. that percentage has gone way down from gold we're right around 40% now which was unthinkable even 10 years ago understood Ellie Groner is here I don't know if you could answer these questions but I have a couple of curiosities so maybe you could uh, uh, how, how do public officials 
in Israel react to these satirical presentations of Israeli television? How do they, for our listeners to put it into perspective, how do Israeli officials react to what happens in America on Saturday Night Live? Meaning Eretz Nadaret and things like that. Is it ever discussed in the office or not? Um, I think it's probably discussed in the office the same degree of that it's discussed in offices across the country. Listen, Eretz Nadaret happens to be a a a, a high uh, a high quality program. It's funny. Right. It's right. Legi- it's legitimately funny. Right. right, but it has a certain political uh, leaning. But yeah, uh, because you're always going to make fun of whoever's in power. True. Good point. And right. um, because the uh, center right has been in power for so long, it's only natural for them to make fun of them. Right. But but the the satire is actually for the most. It's hard to do good satire, right? And they actually so do no one walks satire. in angry on the next nah, morning. Okay. I don't think so. Once the, in a while, there's there's a there's a manufactured crisis. You know, right. How could they depict <laughs> Naftali Bennett right. that way? And then, but, but but it's it's not. <laughs> and and the prime minister goes to the UN, has to deliver a speech in English, and usually a historic speech, or at least something close to what many would call historic. Every speech is a historic speech. Come how, on. how many people see that speech in advance? Hmm. Can you say that he... A dozen? I don't know. Is it, so it's not even possible to say he writes the speech. He has people who help Prime him write. Prime Minister writes all Does he write speeches. the speech? Of course. <laughs> As we say in the vernacular. <laughs> it, would he tend to be more involved in the writing of an English speech than a Hebrew one? Or Prime or, Minister writes all his own speeches. That's Come the on. only thing you'll tell me, huh? <laughs> that's it. I can't, I, can't, I can't get anything else out of him. Um, what did you think, by the way, of the... UN 2018 speech. And I, I thought it was great. I categorize these speeches. I, I watch, The UN annual speech to me are fascinating. What he's going to focus on, how many jokes he makes, what types of props he's going to use. So, I found this one to be... So let me say this. I left the office in July. I had zero... Right, I understood. Had, no, no, so, but so, you probably no, saw no, it. So, so I want right. to just make sure the, the biases right. are not in place. I had zero to do with the 2018 speech. Right. I would say less than zero, but that's mathematically impossible. Okay. I had zero to do with the speech. I was not one of the people that saw this, the, one of the dozen people that saw the speech ahead of time. Right. I had no idea. I found out about it just like every other citizen of Israel. I actually thought that was one of his better speeches. I really did because I thought there was, um, I thought there was new content. You know, oftentimes some of the criticism uh, from sort of uh, the, the Israeli criticism of some of the speeches tended to be something along the lines of. You know, he's great at speaking, but there's nothing new there. There's no right. news, etc. And that you, that tends to come from people that don't understand the value of, you know, in, in diplomacy, sometimes you need to hammer messages right. again and again. Be reminded and about it. To that. So, right. But leaving that criticism aside, this time there was actually new material. It was actually, I thought it was... Uh, the Iranians I, I, are very helpful with I, that. I, huh? I thought it was... Uh, <laughs> yeah. They give you new material. Uh, believe me, there's a lot more material that uh, he'll never tell and I'll never tell. But it's... Um, there was it, there was there was new information for 99.999% of the population in this speech. So I thought it was actually one of his better ones. Speaking to Ellie Groner, we're here in Jerusalem with JM and the AM and the Nachum Siegel Network. Um, what do you By the way, my condolences to uh, Yankees fans, oh, of which I am one. You I, heard uh, about it, huh? What do you mean I heard about it? I, uh, you were up <laughs> early like me? Of course. What kind of question is that? I mean, how is it possible? Explain to me. How is it possible that they lose two in a row to the Red Sox? How is that possible? Why did they leave CC in? Why <laughs> did Aaron Boone leave CC in? Aaron, if you're listening to JM in the AM, why did you leave CC in? That's what you have a bullpen for. What is your day like now? You are concentrating on what activities so now? now? I actually have time to watch the baseball games. That's, first <laughs> That's of the all. activity you're concentrating <laughs> That's on. That's first of all. <laughs> Second of all, no, I, listen, I, I stepped down three months ago. Right. 
um, I'm actually limited in what I can do within Israel for another few months. Do you help your replacement or not? Or you just so walk there, out? There hasn't been a uh, replacement named yet. Oh, okay. Um, and in an election year, it's less important because the dirty half secret is that nothing is there's no economic policy that's really going to get done right. over the next they'll, they'll uh, be campaign they'll year. be campaign focused yeah everything is and no and it's very hard it's also legally it's challenging to do economic policy because it, there's you know a lot of things that need to be approved by by our justice right by our ministry of justice is that well you're doing that because it's election therefore you're not going to be able to get anything done in an election Got it. it's no it's no secret Got it. which was why i was uh uh comfortable stepping aside right. and basically i told prime minister Netanyahu that he should you know Hire the person who who would transition with to take with him for the next term, because I do anticipate him uh, serving another term. Right. Um, so uh, I've been uh, you know enjoying. And it you said you're and you said you're limited. Co- you said you're limited. I, I'm limited right. in what I'm allowed to do in right. Israel just because of cooling off periods and right. whatnot. So I'm uh, you know actually going to China next week. I've gone with my wife and I have taken a couple of vacations already. I'm. Uh, Going to China next week, we're doing a pretty nice uh, speaking tour in the U.S. end of October, beginning of November. So if you happen to be in New York, New Jersey, Montreal, Denver, Phoenix, or Los Angeles, you know, maybe I'll come your way. And what will that theme be? You'll do a speaking engagement, well, what it's like to work in the Prime Minister's office? Like well, what's... I'll talk about, uh, um, it'll be sort of like, you know, what really involved in running a country. Got and, it. And um, some of these going to be off-record stuff, etc. But, um, and then I'll, uh, I, I anticipate... Um, planting uh, planting a flag somewhere in uh, you know towards the beginning of 2019, looking at different sort of opportunities. But it'll be in it'll be in the it'll be in startup nation. It'll be something business oriented. It'll be something um, uh, where I think we'll be able to have a lot of impact and where we'll be able to help Israel's economy grow. And also, I anticipate staying involved in sort of the policy stuff. Any particular company? We know it. Ways, Mobileye, etc. The types of impact they've had. Anything happening now that has caught your eye? That's a lot, a lot, a lot. There's a lot. There, there is, there is so much. But you can't going tell on. us an app that'll be in every phone in the world, like Ways. Like there's nothing like that at the moment. That uh, I, I want to give first dibs to my limited partners. Thank God. <laughs> Good strategy on your part. That's how you grow an economy, huh? <laughs> exactly. I, I have enjoyed this tremendously. Uh, Feelings mutual. I appreciate that very much. Uh, aside from the Yankee comment, I no, mean, <laughs> I, I'm a Yankees fan. I know. I'm a Yankees it's fan. It's terrible. It gives me. Uh, <laughs> I, I was not. I was not happy to see it, but we have to. We have to give credit to the Red Sox. They are a very, very, very good team. And by the way, if you're still a world traveler in March, I'm sure you've heard that the Yankees and Red Sox are playing in London. In March, I did not to hear. start the 2019. You heard this, the 2019 baseball season. So a regular, put a regular season, regular game? season game. You want to want to put together a little London uh, journey with me? I, I heard Israelis go to London for the day. Is I, that I, true? But, but, that Israelis try fly to London for a day. I'll be going there for two days in March. It sounds like. But I'm, t- <laughs> but I'm talking about Israelis who leave in the morning to go shopping, and come back at night. I will tell you something about Israelis. This is something that's that's this is you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners understand this. Israelis. The, the, the extent to which people will travel, and I guess it's historically Jews have been wanderers and travelers, etc., but the extent to which they'll travel to stay in Israel is unbelievable. A American, your mainstream American, if he gets a job offer in London, and it's a job offer he can't turn down, what does he do? His family moves to London, right? right? That's a, 
an Israeli gets a job offer in London he can't do turn down. What does he do? He travels every week, right? No, I, you think I'm making this up? Go to go to Ben Gurion on on Sunday night and look at the number of Israelis like in in Ranana and Efrat and Modi'in and Hashmonaim. They're traveling all over the world every week. Their families are here, and the extent to which Israelis will travel in order to have families in Israel is mind-boggling. Israelis. And think you mean nothing. North American Israelis as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no, but Israelis, Jews, Israelis. Right. Think no, I mean, Israelis. You know, as far as I'm concerned, Jews, Israelis. It's, right. it's almost a hainuach, right? It's right. just there's still people that live in in in, in America, and right. I won't go into why. But 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 um, Israelis uh, think nothing. I, I've had people approach me. There's this cherry grove in Ethiopia. It's a great business opportunity. Let's go tomorrow. Like they'll think nothing. <laughs> you. you, you <laughs> United opened up a line, a flight. Here, here's, a, here's a true story. I'm not making this up. Before there was a direct flight to San Francisco, and back in my sort of uh, when I before I became a government, you know, uh, hack, and I was a real business professional, I would go to San Francisco once a year, let's say. And the way to go before United opened the direct line was you'd fly to Los Angeles, and then you take one of these um, smaller flights from from LA right. to San Francisco. The flights from LA to San Francisco would leave every hour, and they would have like seventy-five people on them, eighty people on them. One of these, like, uh, uh-huh. I must have taken that flight from LA to San Francisco six times, seven times, eight times. I'm telling you, every time I was on, there were like five Israelis on the flight. <laughs> now it's 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 halfway it's halfway around the world. There's only eighty people on the flight. Israelis travel anywhere. They'll travel anywhere at all times because they they like it. They're good at it, and the world is becoming a smaller place, and Israelis are becoming more more in demand. Will they be allowed to go to Qatar to view the World Cup as spectators or not? Uh, Likely not, right? I don't know. It's possible know. that the diplomacy could people with uh, that's complicated. That's complicated. Certain people certainly cannot. Right. My travel has been severely hindered by my uh, your position. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It doesn't expire, unfortunately. It's not like right. uh, there's no a five-year expiration date on where I can travel and when. But that's part of the price of uh, serving. Unbelievable, Ellie. Thank you so much. Pleasure. This was absolutely phenomenal. Pleasure, Ellie Groner, everybody. At one time, for 37 months, Director General of the Prime Minister's Office. And as you heard, uh, no doubt he will plant a flag somewhere in 2019. That will no doubt be intriguing to all of us. More coming up. You're listening to us at the Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem. Day three of our three-day journey as we broadcast live from Jerusalem. Tomorrow back in New York. I remind everybody to be tuned in every single morning to JM in the AM. And uh, coming up after... uh, uh, this edition of JMN Bite Size with Yoni Pollock featuring a couple of amazing interviews, including Tova in Israel and her interview at that time uh, with uh, Ari Fold of Blessed Memory. We're going to replay that during the, uh, uh, the broadcast between 9 and 11. And live lunch comes up at 11 a.m. Eastern time today, and that's going to be with uh, Avrami live from Beit Shemesh. Uh, meanwhile, more coming up here on this uh, Wednesday morning edition from the Inbal Hotel at JM in the AM. Say good luck,
JM and the AM, are we on? I don't hear myself, that's why I'm asking for on. There we go. I ch I switched the uh, I switched headsets. I, I like this one better, so I just switched I back. I can figure out what happened to my headset, or the guest headset, as the case may be, but it's okay. Um, here we are, JM and the AM, the last few moments, the last few minutes of our incredible Israel journey. Who else? <laughs> I literally ran after you in the hall. Oh, thank you, Ellie. <laughs> Who else to wrap up this journey with than the one and only Steve Leibowitz. Steve Leibowitz who has been such an incredible producer for us, friend for us. I mean, friend for a long, long time, frankly. I know, but new friend to me. That's correct. And I wondered, by the way, how you get along with somebody else with the title producer. Can and, I just tell you? And you I must that? say, a pretty smooth, pretty smooth that's relationship, thank God. Steve's a nice guy. <laughs> I think it was pretty uh, seamless. It was pretty seamless. It was we, seamless. William and I got along. Uh, Swimmingly. But there were, there were some moments... For me, over the last three days, that frankly, after 35 years of broadcasting, were historic. The fact that I got to pepper Yossi Klein Halevi with mm -hmm. questions and curiosities that I've had. I have a greater respect for him than I used to have, frankly. Because we never really agreed politically, but he presents his position, first of all, with the right-wing background, which obviously you know softens it a bit. But he presents his position in such a respectful and um, you know calm manner that... I think if you pressed him, he would say, I'm not sure I'm 100% right, but this is the way I feel. This is the way you know, I feel going forward. So that was, that was a great one for me. For me. And, um, and uh, Effie Zuroff's conversation. Uh, you know, These are the people that, you know, during my 25-year, even 30-year history as a journalist in Israel, that I, I go back to time and time again as some of the most brilliant, interesting... Um, communicative uh, people that exist in this country in the English language and um, and and you know so many of them have 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 made good have made their mark in this country uh, people like Ellie Groner right. that I just had on and Ron Dermers of the world right. and others that are you know I consider friends and um, it, and it's it's uh, the Michael Freud conversation as far as I'm concerned is a very important one for my audience to hear I called Michael Freud today and I said to him, I would like to make a monthly donation based on what I heard in, in your... Now, I don't give to... I'm not a wealthy guy. I'm not a Barry Lieben. I don't have <laughs> a lot of money. But I give uh, monthly to uh, now three organizations. I give to Greenpeace because I really care about the environment. I give to Zohar because uh, there has to be an alternative for, for people in this country. Right. Uh, yeah, we agree with you on that. Zohar is a wonderful Yeah, we agree with you on that. For sure. And uh, now I'll be giving to um, to Michael Freund and Shavay uh, Israel. Shavay Israel. Wow. Yeah. wow. And and then the John Medved encounter, which could have gone on for three hours, frankly. John but Medved is yesterday. revolutionizing this country. Yeah. I mean, he is creating investment possibilities for the masses in Israeli high tech startup nation. Just see John, and he'll plug you into it. A lot of good returns, an amazing amount of money. Also a friend of mine since the 80s. And uh, every time we see each other, it's always the same. Also with Ellie Groner. Why don't we?
we see each other more. <laughs> we don't have time. Well, I'm now semi-retired. All I care about is travel, and my football. grandkids, and football. That's it. You know, I said to Steve before when we were sitting in what we've affectionately been calling the green room that, um, to me, it's been very heartwarming to watch Barry and Steve with this cadre of men with whom they've had relationships for decades, yeah. and yet they haven't seen each other in decades, and they come together like it was yesterday, yeah. and you feel the love and you feel the warmth, and they're all so well-respected in their industry, and especially the gentlemen who are living here. You know, Barry went back this morning. We are going back later today, but you have people who have been here that... I mean, they have built this country. I get to come and get on a plane and come visit, and then I, with a broken heart, go back. We started, all of us, uh, Yossi Klein, Alevi, you mentioned, John Medved, myself, uh, as... Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown, fanatic Zionists, who everything we lived, every, you know, waking moment was, what can we do about Soviet Jewry? We misbehaved uh, in those days, but it was a time when Sharansky was in prison. We came on Aliyah, and here we seek a normal life. We don't want to remain necessarily as activists all of our life. <laughs> we want to do other things. For me, I, I wanted to bring football here, uh, and I wanted to work as a journalist. Uh, Bobby Brown worked in the prime minister's office, and for him, the Holocaust and restoration of uh, Jewish money and so on. Yossi Klein Alevi has always been an intellectual. At one point, he was an intellectual on the, the right, right in Beitar, right. and now he's just a, an in, a, a nation, a, 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 really a nation-level intellectual. The he's guy's a, brilliant. He's a national conscience. Yeah. He really is. Yes, he is. Steve Leibowitz is here. All right, uh, do this for me, because yes, back right. in the 90s, yep. early 2000s, it was easy for us to follow football in Israel. It was basically the Saturday Night League. We knew that sometime in February would be the big Holy Land Bowl, right? And, and it seems like, the, I don't know, has the schedule shifted? Has a, have a lot of other leagues popped up? Has, the, has there been a big increase in the number of games per season? What, what has changed that has made it more difficult for us in America to follow what's going on here? Back in the 90s, the league ran out of my talus bag. Let me, <laughs> let me be really clear. It was a one-man, I had a friend, Danny Gwertz, a two-man operation. We, 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 we got some T-shirts. We found a couple of guys to ref games. We rented a field, and we played touch football. It grew like crazy, and we got to over 30 teams, and we had no place to play by the time we met Bob Kraft. Right. Bob Kraft heard about what we were doing and went to see him together with Barry Lieb, and right. I told that story the other day and agreed to build us a small field in Jerusalem uh, with the help of then-Mayor uh, Ehud Olmert, right. and, it, and uh, so we had a place to play. The league continued to grow. We formed a women's league. We formed uh, a... Tackle. Ta- well, so Tackle came a little bit later. There, right. were, there were three teams of lunatics, <laughs> lunatic Israelis <laughs> in Haifa and Tel Aviv that had formed a league without a connection to me. Really? Yes, and uh, but it wasn't really a league. They played like a two-game season, and they played tackle football with no equipment. <gasps> so I was told about this at a party in Where, Jerusalem. Were there mothers? <laughs> <laughs> The Jewish very mothers. Very good question. Oh, my, my God. My biggest problem in recruiting uh, players is the, the is the Jewish mother. I imagine. I'm horrified. But uh, so those guys, uh, I, I invited them to come to see me in Jerusalem. We sat down. After I finished telling them that they were lunatics and they weren't going to live long and they've got to, you know, this has got to change, they agreed. And they said if we, they, they knew that if we ever wanted to take it to a different level where you actually have helmets and, and shoulder pads when you play tackle <laughs> football and have fields and have teams and have leagues, we had to work together. And so we did, and we started out uh, having only four adult tackle teams. 
it also just took off, and we were up. We're now we now have eight tackle of uh, men's tackle football teams around the country. We have thirteen high school tackle football teams in cities around Israel. Which Playing is like on Israel. what? So they we rent fields and what soccer fields? Soccer fields that are converted into football fields, and we our team comes out there and marks out the field. We have sixty guys that have passed our referees course at the Wingate Institute. We have 70. You have a referees course yes, at Wingate? I want to be part of the referees <laughs> 70 course. certified coaches that went through a six-month course at Wingate. We're talking about, uh, because these are legal requirements. In order to have football played in this country, you have to do it safely. My, as I said, Jewish mothers, be assured, First of all, that in our league, these Jewish kids don't hit that hard. Um, and secondly, um, it, we're going to do it right. We're teaching proper ways to tackle. We're, we're teaching the kids the, you know, the proper ways to deal with the sport, uh, and, and it's not easy. Didn't one of your tackle teams travel outside of Israel in some competition? Yes, we've uh, we played. Our first game was in uh, Madrid. And uh, our tackle guys went over there, and we, um, I'm not allowed to say, uh, use a, a harsh word, right? right. I'll just say, you won. We won. <laughs> we won. It was a good, close game. There were uh, anti-Israel protesters there, and we were really proud to be playing in front of them. I can okay. imagine. They were, they were chanting anti-Israel things the entire game, and we won. And the game was broadcast live, and the Kraft saw it, and Barry Lieben saw it, and we were all very proud of ourselves. Wow. Amazing. Uh, and then reality struck when we were the next year we were um, assigned to play against Italy, and we got ripped. <laughs> but we're going to have a whole <sighs> schedule of games coming up soon. And one thing that we're really proud of is that in this new Kraft family sports campus that we have here in Jerusalem that Bob Kraft... Visible from the road or not? Yes, visible from the road, from Road 9. It's And it's uh, it's an amazing facility. It's the equivalent of Sport Tech in Tel Aviv. Right. Three fields next to the other, uh, next to each other, modern locker rooms. We're going to be hosting the European Championship of Flag Football here in Jerusalem next uh, July. Uh, I hope you guys are... What's able the date? to come it'll be uh <laughs> like the third to the seventh of july uh, just just around the time of uh, new year's uh, in uh, independence, uh, day. independence right. day in the united states we'll have about 20 teams from uh, from europe coming here we were supposed to host the world championship back in 2014 and the war came and right. a month before they pulled it and we weren't able to to host uh, that. we remember that we but remember for me that it's happened. a really important thing that international teams right. come to israel it's see amazing. jerusalem get to tour the country yep. and play football this is not against non against uh, jews this is not maccabi games against this other is world teams against non-jews right. yeah. against other world teams yes. who hit hard um, <laughs> well, harder than we do a- <laughs> afi has a website or not Sure. And you, people can follow the scores and standings? They can follow scores and standings. Updated. And we have Twitter, uh, Twitter and right. we have Instagram. You'll get there, You'll get there I promise. All of that stuff <laughs> that I understand nothing about, and uh, <laughs> and, and uh, but that, you know, I have to write exactly. stuff. And finally, Steve Leibowitz, Miriam Wallach and I will tell you what you should be most proud of. What's that? In terms of the Football League in Israel. Okay. We have witnessed with our own eyes that th- the people who volunteer to take the new Olim's luggage... Off of the luggage racks. The Dean Rebels, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Correct. They've been doing that. They, Correct. They, they show up there in their uniform. That team Wait, shows up know, in their uniform. The Tani Kramer guys. Right. You know why Tani and the other, why they do it. They do it because they want the first shot at recruiting people. 
Seriously. I see that they guy. Go, the, oh, I want that guy. They go after. They go <laughs> and they look at the sizes. The lone soldiers. The lone soldiers. They look at the sizes of those players before anything else. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Welcome no to doubt. the country. The and rebels you are. The, the are rebels are. They bend the rules. It's like the you know. I, I, God forbid I should say this, but like people have accused the Patriots. The rebels <laughs> bend the rules. No, I love Bob Kraft. I love the Patriots, and they should win five more championships. Amen to that. With inflated football. And look at this. In our last minute of broadcasting, the legendary Larry Waxman has walked into our mobile studio, which for me brings everything full circle because Larry was our very, very first Israel correspondent in the 1980s. Steve, you're what, 78, the uh, the year you moved to Israel? 78? I, I moved 74? to Israel in 74. 74, and you're 84, Larry, right? Yep. 19 today, today is the 34th anniversary of my alley. Today, Mamash? Wow. So 34 years ago, back in 1984, to Jerusalem. Um, and still living in sort of the same neighborhood as you sort did back of, then? Yeah, look yeah. at that, a little lower. Pretty amazing. So Larry, uh, of course, um, no secret to this audience, I say responsible for my career. Thank I think you. That, that the, and it's funny. All this has been about camp. Steve's talking about with so many of our guests about Camp Beitar, uh and the influence that it had on, on the development, really, of uh, great personalities who helped build the state of Israel. And, of course, Larry and I back in Camp Marashah in the 1980s. Uh, also, thank God, a healthy dose of Zionism there, maybe in a little bit of a different way, but a big healthy <laughs> dose of Zionism. Late 70s also. Well, I wasn't there in the late 70s. I was only there in the 80s. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think I was that old? <laughs> Anyway, uh, our first Israel correspondent, and here you are today, having watched us get all the way to the presidential suite at the Inbal. A, l- a little different than Yeah, the but the first. president never stays. <laughs> Is that true? No, nah, he doesn't stay here. Nah, no, I'm kidding around. Neither anyway, president. I hope you're doing well. Thank God. Thank God. Anything in the news that we should know about that has struck your fancy over the last day or two? Yeah. The, the, the resignation. Of, of uh, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley. You know, here he's here. She's very special in this country. Yeah. Well, hopefully she'll end up in a good place where she can still, still defend and help the state of Israel. Bezrat Hashem. Anyway, great seeing you. Ditto. Ditto. And uh, it's amazing being back here in Jerusalem. Are you aware of all the achievements of your guests too? Meaning Steve's achievements. Mm-hmm. You want to give me a, a quick rundown? Should we start with English TV? Should we start with Kraft Stadium? There's, he has so many achievements in this country. He just doesn't like to talk about them. But he does have fans and people who do know. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We've had an opportunity really nice to touch on some of them. And have you seen the new complex that uh, that we keep referring to? Because Kraft Stadium, the one uh, near Gan Soccer, yeah. is Kraft Stadium. But what do we call the new one now, Steve? The Kraft Sports Campus. And just tell Larry where, where it is, is it? exactly. Emek Arazim, like under oh, where lift Yeah. It's where the only 9-11 memorial is. Yeah, there's three, exactly. And it's near the 9-11 and, mm. and Torsinai and yeah, yeah. down in the valley. I didn't even know about that. Yeah. Well, there it is, and it's brand new. But you should know, with Kraft Stadium, you can drive by there late at night, and you'll see mostly yeshiva kids playing ball. you see at 10 o'clock, they're coming out when they get out of the base medrash, even near kids. All the kids with, with the white shirts, all the kids come there to use that stadium. I, I don't know what would be if it didn't exist. You know what they tell me? Many of these yeshiva guys, they say after Shana Aleph, they come back for Shana Bet to play football. <laughs> I have no doubt. I have no doubt. You, you can't imagine. It's always lit up. They're always there. I thank Larry Waxman. I thank Steve Leibowitz. And Steve, an extra thank you to you for helping us produce three phenomenal days from Jerusalem. It's been thank a pleasure. you. And I cannot wait to do it again. When are we doing it again? Well, I, I, I was up very late with Barry, very, very late with Barry, until uh, very early this morning. 
And he says to me at the end of our conversation, let's do it again next year. I said, Barry, I bet you Steve would say yes to that. Oh, absolutely. I'll so, Bezrat Hashem, we'll have an opportunity to do this again, and I pray that it is, in fact, uh, only one year from now. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world in the web, and on the Nachum Siegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. And I thank everybody for tuning in and being part of this amazing three-day Jerusalem journey. Big thank you to the Inbal Hotel uh, for their hospitality. Thank you to their general manager, Ronnie, and to everybody who had a role in making us feel very comfortable here again. Uh, coming up, it's Bite Size with Yoni Pollock. He's be, he'll be featuring a couple of amazing interviews, including uh, Tova in Israel and her interview with the late Ari Fuld. We're going to replay that during the next couple of hours between 9 and 11 a.m. A big thank you to ZK, our chief engineer, and a big thank you to Avrami, who was here earlier. He'll be doing a live lunch between 11 and 1 from Beit Shemesh, so make sure to be tuned in and enjoy all the great music. Have a fabulous Wednesday and Rosh Chodesh. Tomorrow, back in the New York City studios, make sure to be tuned in. Uh, till then, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.